everyone. Welcome back. Uh, today's guest is John Jenkins. Uh, he's a director, editor, and creative based in California. John has worked on massive campaigns for companies like Google, Activision, Netflix, and Audi, just to name a few. Um, he's also the founder of What We Do Collective and plays bass in the hardcore band Birth Old City, as well as having done significant time in, I believe, a West Coast legendary band, Allegiance. Uh, he's an old-time friend of mine, uh, much respected, much cherished person in my life. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so super excited to be here. Okay. Now, we just covered a lot there, and like, you know, I'm kind of chuckling, like, because it's the same thing happened with my last interview. It's like with someone I've known for a long time, we're kind of almost like taught we're, we're catching up and sharing stuff. I want to actually talk about on the podcast. Like, Oh, save that, save, stop, stop. So let's just hop into it. Yeah. Uh, I want to start capturing this for the uninitiated, for the people who don't know, because again, we have people who come from all over the place. Tell us about who you are today and what you do professionally. Great. <clears throat> so who I am today is, uh, is, uh, sort of a content creator marketing person. So I've decided that <clears throat> through the last 10 years of me figuring out what I was gonna do for my career, I've uh, spent um, a lot of time in post-production television commercials, in helping people figure out strategy for small businesses, figuring out all that kind of um, content, visual content-based related stuff for, for corporations or businesses in general. Now, I ended up, uh, and for the last 10, 15 years, I've looked for staff positions and haven't found them and found a really great career in being freelance or contract based and in this same sort of field. And by starting my own company, I've actually figured out a way to uh, grow and expand a foundation that existed as a single uh, entity employer into something that's bigger and can take on more breadth of work uh, quickly. So who I am now is interesting. It's a great question because We've known each other for a very long time, and I felt like there, I do feel like there's been a big, big change between who I was uh, 15 years ago and 20 years ago and who I am now, and I feel like they're two different individuals. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's John Jenkins, who lived in San Francisco and was one person, uh -huh. and John Jenkins, who lives in L.A. and is a completely different person. Mm -hmm. And so when you say who you are today, I'm much more confident, uh, capable. I'm a father of two children. I'm a homeowner. I'm a business owner. I'm... Uh, much more comfortable in where I sit in the world mm -hmm. than I did 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, and your husband. As I say that? Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm a husband to the most wonderful woman I've ever met in my life. Yeah, you two, uh, and we'll get to this in a bit. You two have, uh, like, a, I'd say, like a real love story, and I think it's cool. I think it's really cool. All right, man. Um, I would agree. I'm going to throw something out there that might sound like a weird way to start an interview. You seem happier today than you were when I knew you when you were younger. That is 100% the case. But is that weird? Like are most, do people get happier? In, like as you get older, you get more comfortable. Do people get happier or do they stay the same or do they get more unhappy? I'm not sure, but you definitely seem much happier than when we were younger. I definitely, I think it for me attributes directly towards confidence mm -hmm. and, and just comfortability in where I exist in the world. Mm -hmm. I think that there was, you know, circumstances and, and experiences that I was having 15 years ago that led me to feel less confident in who I was and where I fit in, not just in, you know, punk and hardcore, but actually in the major mainstream aspects of the world. And that includes my career business. Um, and that comes from a lot of different sources, like friends being too close with you and, and, um, and having a certain reaction to what the things that drive you 
or just not understanding that what you're going to do for the rest of your life is what you're doing now. And how do we sort of mold that and be um, present that in a positive way and help you grow into that space? And I don't think I necessarily got that until much later in my life. And then once I realized, oh, this is actually what I'm going to do. And um, I, I surrounded myself with the people that understood that and got that and wanted that to grow. And once I figured out that that was happening, I got very happy. I was yeah. like, this is... I'm actually doing something that's valuable yeah. and, and contributing. And then once I realized that, I became a happier person. So I like that you've uh, got that. And I'm super flattered that you just said that to me in general because I do feel that way. Okay. And dude, what a cool answer. And there's a lot of un I want to unpack there because like I I've gone through, I'd say, um, a bit of a similar journey. But let's talk about career path and, mm -hmm. and what you're doing now. So is what you're doing today what you first set out to do professionally when you were younger, when you first started kind of entering into what we'd call the professional world? Um, no, but yes. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so I, I've had cameras around me since I was, uh, I guess, eight. I've got a picture of me with holding my dad's camera um, trying to create a story. So the answer is yes, I am still surrounded by cameras trying to tell stories. Um, how I got to this point, I had no clue how I was going to get to this point. And this point, and, and we'll get to this probably later, but this point being a creative, when I say this point, as if I've reached the top of the mountain, that is not the truth. Yeah. Uh, even in this point, um, and I'm working on a short film based on this notion of moving the goalposts, mm -hmm. you set the goalposts to something and then you, you kick the ball through it. This is a sports idiom. My mother hates sports idioms. She'll listen to this and hate me for bringing this up. Mm -hmm. But you, you put set the goalposts at a specific distance away from you and you kick the ball. And once it goes through that, you go, oh, that was cool. Let's set the goalpost in a different place. Mm -hmm. And you keep moving the goalpost back further or farther up or differently or wider or shorter until you've just, you feel like you're not reaching goals, but you're really, you're scoring every time you kick the ball. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like at this point in my career, um, I didn't know, I didn't know how I would get here to this point. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm here, there's still a million goalposts in front of me. And I'm constantly going, do I feel like I've, I'm successful or do I feel like I'm a failure? And that doesn't mean like, that's not black and white. That's not ones and zeros. That means, do I feel like I've had more successes in my career or, or failures? And you've talked about this on your show lots about failure. Um, there, there's not a black and white sense to that. Like, even when you fail, you're learning. So you're moving forward. So you may rely, you may lean heavier on the failures that you've had rather than the successes. Mm -hmm. But at this point, I do feel like I'm comfortable. I'm stable. I've, I've got a good network of people that I can rely on to find work. Um, and so the path to getting here was irregular. Mm -hmm. But um, and did I see it coming? No. But yes, I am in the field that I kind of thought I would be in when I was much younger. So you're in the you're in the general field yeah. that you wanted to be in, but what you're doing necessarily you, and also like I imagine technology has changed, yeah. like the platforms have changed, so it's like a whole different thing. Totally. All right, so, dude, I am a, like I guess I'm very comfortably in like middle age at this point, which is <laughs> horrifying to talk about. But as a, someone who's in this like you know late 40s, when I think of like content creation, I have like a vague 
idea about it. What does it mean to do like content creation, branding, like any of those things? Like, so what, what does your like world entail basically? It honestly depends on the, the client that I'm working for and this, the place that I'm being hired by. But <clears throat> content creation, and that's so, it can be very devalued. Uh -huh. in, in like content creation could be someone holding a phone for a TikToker. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not to say that that's not super valuable. You could be talking to 1.5 million people in right. that moment. However, what I, what my world is, is more um, closer to uh, large scale branding and advertising um, projects. Mm -hmm. So uh, on the stuff that I've made most of my income doing, it's usually coming in the post-production realm mm -hmm. and working on large scale uh, commercial advertising video projects, mm -hmm. which traditionally went on broadcast television and sometimes theatrical, but now is much more geared straight towards YouTube pre-roll. Mm -hmm or Instagram or something of the digital nature. So um, when we when you say content creation and what I say, what my business does, and it, it, my business is very um, malleable, malleable and can change based on who's hiring me. Mm -hmm. But uh, where I've made most of my money is in broadcast, television, commercial, post-production. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of words to get to the point where I say I edit commercials. All right. <laughs> But high, <laughs> but high value commercials. So I like, I like you're like it's like a real Wizard of Oz at the back. It's just like a dude behind the, behind the, the, and, crib, the, crib with the crank. And uh, that is exactly what that is. Okay. Uh, it's the 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 trick is is that there's companies that do what I do and they do that for lots and lots of money. Right. Like wouldn't even talk to you for less than hundred thousand dollars a project. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm able to be and I and this is going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn and I don't mean to do that, but I, I, I want you to Okay, do well, that. let me toot my horn. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I would like to be, like to think that I'm a B-level editor, meaning A-level is cutting David Fincher films mm -hmm. and B-level is me right. and the people that are near, nearby me and my, my uh, peers, my um, coworkers. So what we're able to do is do the work at an A-level um, uh, ability. Mm -hmm. So our abilities are A-level. Mm -hmm but our situation is B-level, meaning we don't go into an office in Santa Monica. We don't uh, bring you breakfast and then check in and see if you have co need coffees as a client. Mm -hmm. We don't check and see if you're gonna stay late and need uh, dinner. We aren't uh, gonna talk to you about the movie that we're cutting next door, mm -hmm. which is all of the rooms I've been in before. Mm -hmm. I've played with those people. I know I've worked at those places as an assistant. I know how they operate. I know how to keep clients happy, but we can keep our budgets half the size of those based purely on um, saving some formalities, meaning right. we're gonna do it remote. We're gonna work in a, so when I when you do say it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz pulling back the cable and it's me on a computer twisting the wheel, yeah. it's kind of what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a, a team of people that work with me, assistants, PAs, um, producers, to make sure that what we're doing is at the highest level. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is me behind a curtain, turning the wheel, uh, editing commercials, uh, doing revisions, working on things very, you know, over and over again until we get it correct for my advertising client and or the uh, brand itself. It's an interesting thing though. So the, it's, it's an A-level product, but with a B-level experience. I wouldn't even say B-level experience. The reason I would put us into B is just purely because of the budget. Right. So it's an A-level experience. Mm -hmm. um, the difference is, I guess, I guess you're saying that from a, like if you were to walk into the Oceana in Santa Monica, it's a ho hotel, mm -hmm. very fancy. Mm -hmm. Or if you were to walk across the street and go into the Viceroy, slightly different, mm -hmm. still very nice, mm -hmm. but slightly different. Mm -hmm. I guess that would be the experience. It's just that we're a 
a more budget conscious and friendly version of post-production in this specific avenue that I have my in the business. Um, we don't have, we're able to give you the, the experience you're used to with regards to post-production, with regards to uh, seeing um, rough cuts, working on the project itself, but we don't, we, the location is agnostic. We don't need to be in Santa Monica. We don't need to be paying the rents to have a business in Santa Monica. Yeah, let me reframe it because I don't yeah. think I framed it well. Sure. It's an A level, A level product, which includes the experience. Like it's a good experience, mm -hmm. but it it it's like B level when it comes to like uh, bells and whistles. Yes, and like what's important about that is um, you're you're honing in on the value proposition and then stripping away any of the fluff. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when you write a cool song. Right. Like you can write a song and you can make that song have like all of like, let's say, traditional song structure and a bunch of solos and like all of all the different things. Or you can write like a 45 second song. And that's like the coolest song that you could have possibly written. It just doesn't have all of the extra stuff. Yeah, I'd prefer the 45 second. Well, I'd prefer the 45 <laughs> second because punk has ruined me and I can't listen. To I can't go to long shows. Yeah. I listen to long songs. OK, that that's cool. But again, it's like. Tell people what post-production is. Yeah, post-production is uh, everything after the camera says cut. So actually, that's not even true because there could be multiple shoot days. That's when we say, uh, that's a wrap. Okay. So when they're on set and they say, that's a wrap, uh, is when post-production takes a hold. So that's everything. And it actually starts before that's a wrap, but that's how the easiest, easiest way to say it. Yeah. We, uh, it, there's a lot of technical jargon that goes into this process, but basically, once you've filmed with the cameras, uh, there's media on the cards now. There used to be film in the, the canister. There's tape in the canister, all that yeah. kind of stuff. And I've worked on all of those formats and styles and, and um, technologies. But basically, it's the process of taking the footage that's been captured and then putting together the story as it's been uh, boarded, as it's been sold. Um, it never ends up in my life exactly how it's been boarded. Uh -huh. And so one of my, one of the things that I think I'm most valuable at doing is being the cross-section between creative and business. Meaning that a creative entity um, once is hired, like a director is hired to make the coolest video they possibly can make. Right. And the agency is there to make sure that the, there's the coolest videos possibly is being made, mm -hmm. but also sell toilet paper or toothbrushes yeah. or whatever the, the product is, video games. So. The, the advertising agency's job is technically to be the intersection between commerce and creative. And I end up in directly in the crosshairs yeah. because I am sitting in a computer editing a commercial where the director is saying, what are you doing? I boarded it this way. And the agency is saying, what are you doing? We need to sell toilet paper. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've, if there's anything that I've learned in my career or anything that's very difficult to teach with what I do, is being that entity to bridge the gap between uh, creative and commerce. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is we end up with some amalgam of this is what the director said, the director needing to let go, the director needing to pu push just far enough to get the best thing he can possibly, he or she, they can possibly get. Mm -hmm. And then also um, understand that now we also have to make something that the, the person paying the money wants to see. Okay, so that sounds very simple. It's very simple when I say it here. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm being sarcastic. It sounds awful. That it's, sounds terrible. It's very awful until you have done it. Uh, and now I I realize the value in it. Uh, and now when 
and I've seen I've seen me I've seen clients come to me yeah. mid project and say, "Hey, we have a problem. Yeah. I need you to pick up." And I go, well, "What's the problem?" And they go, "Well, here's the here's the piece, and here's what's happening." Yeah. And I go, "The piece looks great. What's the problem? Well, this is this is what's happening." And I go, "Okay, cool. Like I can take the project from here." And this has happened a lot to me too. A project gets taken away from you as an editor or as a creative, um, and this is that's something you kind of have to deal with as a creative. Mm -hmm. You're going to be removed or replaced or inserted mm -hmm. um, in places you weren't, didn't expect to be. Mm -hmm. And you have to kind of be able to figure out how to work with that psychologically, but also creatively. Like failure, that's not failure, that's okay, this didn't work. I'll attack it differently next time. Okay, let's hit on that though, because it, it's telling me a lot about like there's technical skills that you need to have, but there's also like you need to be able to um, really understand how to manage ego Yep. how to manage expectation. And also when I say ego, you have to manage the ego of other people. You have to manage your own ego. You have to manage expectation, the expectation of let's say a creative who did something, but the expectation of the client. And then also you have to manage yourself in all of that process. So tell us about that. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's one of the things, like I say, is the, heart, is the thing that can, you cannot be taught. You either are going to be good at that or are going to learn it over it. And when I say it can't be taught, I just said learn it. Mm -hmm. um, meaning that you can experience it over and over again until you understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so I can't, like if you were gonna sit down with me and we're gonna sit down next to each other and at an extremely difficult edit, mm -hmm. meaning that they're, they're the creative entity and the business entity do not see eye to eye and they are, in, and there's a big problem, mm -hmm. which has happened to me uh, quite a few times on a video game project for once, for instance. and. Uh, the editor was doing a great job, mm -hmm. but needed to manage the agency's expectations better. That's something that's very difficult. The technical aspects can be taught. You can learn about aspect ratios and frame rates and um, uh, aperture distances. And I mean, there's a guy, Spencer, right next to me right now who's like, I get all of that stuff. <laughs> but Spencer, do, do you get that stuff? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. What a relief. But Spencer, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but Spencer probably hasn't been in a room where a director is um, just yelled at you, what did you do to my commercial? Mm. And me say, and Spencer say, I'm doing what the client's asking me to do. All right. And the client's sitting two feet over that way. Yeah. And so there's, a, there's definitely uh, something that can be, that's something that I've always talked to with younger directors is that you're being hired for your amazing vision before you've started this project. You've done a great job with making sure that these people think that you are really great at doing this project. Mm -hmm. Do this project to your best of your ability. And when they say wrap, have one day with the editor and let go. And I guarantee you, you will likely get hired more often than if you continue down the path of arguing creative decisions moving forward. You, if they ask you for your opinion, absolutely give it. Mm -hmm. If they ask you to contribute, absolutely give it. But at some point, you have to understand where the money is coming from and what their expectations are and needs are from that project specifically. Mm -hmm. And then you have to allow that project to morph into what it will initially or eventually become. All right. So what happens? What's the danger if you don't do that? If you stay kind of like you still try and be in that conversation? The danger is, is that one, you won't get hired by them again. Mm -hmm. But when you think about a creative, a creative position anyways, it, basically when you get high, you know, there's a, a movie where it says always be closing. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And there's a, a saying like, once you get the job is the day you start, once you get the client is the day you start losing them. Mm-hmm. So you don't have the, you don't have the, um, there's nothing certain. You're not going to get the next job because you got the first job from those people. Right. But you will definitely hurt yourself being, getting the next job if you push so hard that you are now a, a difficult entity within the process of the project. Yeah. Yeah. That idea of not being difficult is, uh, is real interesting for me because, you know, again, for any of the audience, I would imagine, you know what I do, but if you don't, uh, so I run a company that is a coaching and training company. So we do a lot of corporate training and courses, but then we do a lot of, uh, executive coaching or coaching in general. And I, myself, I do mostly like kind of high level C-suite, uh, coaching. I'm, largely moving out of that now just to run the company. Um, but I don't know why I said that. I'm actually coaching more than ever, but I'm trying I'm trying to move out of it. And a lot of times I have a com- I have conversations with people about um, picking your spots. So there was this great uh, clip that I saw it's like you know from like the 1970s I think it was on a talk show a comedian two comedians were on a talk show and um, one of the comedians started making fun of the other one in a like really uncool way. And the other comedian just looked at him and said, pick your spots. And I, and then the guy kind of kept going cause you could see his like from a male ego side, he got a little like, oh crap. So he like tried to like double down on it. And the other comedian was like, pick your spots and said it again. And I'll never forget that. Cause like being in a tour van and like doing all the stuff, it's like, you could just be like, so believing your own shit. And I, again, you gotta believe your own shit. But when someone tells you you're full of shit, you should really listen to them. And uh, so in, in this coaching with the, with executives, sometimes I have to be like, hey, like, is this worth what you're doing? And they'll be like, yes, it's worth what I'm doing because of this, that, and da-da-da-da-da. And like, they'll, they'll totally talk it out. And I'll just be like, okay, it's, it's worth it based on what you think it is today. But what about on Tuesday morning when nobody wants to work with you anymore? Is that worth it? You're going to get this short-term win that seems like this huge thing. And more often than not, people just need to eat shit a bunch of times before they get it. I'm going to give you a punk example. Yeah. I remember coming up in a band and, you know, we'd gotten just enough success where we like, you know, kind of believed our own shit, which is a good thing because you got to do it to be able to get up on stage. But also not enough to know that uh, if someone's telling you you're full of shit, you got to need to listen. And I myself became what would essentially be like a difficult band person, you know, like being very demanding of the label we're on and the people at the label and making kind of shitty phone calls and complaining to people like, oh, you know, this label, like they're not doing blah, blah, blah. And like, just like caricature of an idiot band dude. Right. And like, I'm probably making it worse than I sound than it was, or perhaps I'm underselling it. I, I, it was a long time ago. Anyways, when I started writing a a record label and I had my first entitled band and I was like, who does this person think they like? How, what are they thinking talking to me like this? It's like, homie, nobody has bought your record. <laughs> nobody cares except for me. I'm the only person that, in your corner, but that person's just not getting it. Mm-hmm. And that idea of like when you're in that creative space, and then it went on, like when I was running uh, the label, like I really became retroactively embarrassed for how I had previously been. Mm-hmm. And it was different stakes, but like that real sense of like, you don't get it until you've experienced it from someone else until you've eaten enough shit. But that like really being difficult. And I don't want to say being difficult is a bad thing. Cause like, I think you should be like fight for what you believe in, have passion, but also like pick your spots, know what's worth it. Know it's not worth yep. it. 
So that's a long example to say that like picking your spots and knowing when to push and when to back off is like one of the most valuable business skills you will ever have. And not just in a creative pursuit, in any kind of business pursuit. How did you learn it? Uh, by watching these people do it <laughs> and, and doing it wrong, being kicked off of, uh, jobs. Yeah. Um, and that's happened a lot. I had a, a big experience once I was working on a piece of content for a major car brand. And, uh, <clears throat> for whatever reason, the creative director, and this is, this has affected me into the future for whatever reason the one of the creative directors on it did not trust me. And, uh, and I was saying what the director was telling them to say, and I was working with the post-production house, right? And you have upstairs, they're doing visual effects on the project. And for whatever reason, that person did not trust me. And uh, I, w I lacked confidence. I lacked uh, experience. I lacked uh, the amount of time I'd spent running the room, is what they call it when you're in an edit bay and you're the editor and you're running the room. Um, and so it, it's affected me moving forward. You know, I, was interested in getting a job. That person happened to work there. They wouldn't meet with me. They remember. I don't. I don't even remember the person's face. Right. But how I interacted in that room m made such an impression that they won't work with me moving forward. For many, from a long time, that affected me. It was right. like, oh man, I really messed that up. Over time, I think that I just realized that there's a lot of there's a lot of things at stake when someone interacts with you like that. Mm -hmm. uh, they could be uncomfortable in their position. You could be uncomfortable in your position. There's a ton of different variables to that. It probably wasn't something that I did specifically. Mm -hmm. um, but it took a lot of time to realize that and getting kicked off the job and replaced. And then that happening three or four more times for absolutely no reason. Just mm -hmm. they, you know, that we're moving in a different direction. Mm -hmm. That all contributes to you being able to be more comfortable and confident in where you should interject and where you should bring back. Mm -hmm. And in a creative field, it's very easy because um, I wouldn't say we were replaceable, but the, the entity, but the, the way that the business is structured, they can put someone else in your position and move the project in a different way creatively, mm -hmm. relatively easily. Mm -hmm. Meaning, okay, I think we're, we're going to stop paying you now. And thanks for your time. I appreciate that. And your energy and effort and the direction you steered it so far, but we're going to move in a different direction. And that's a normal thing, a more normal thing, I think, in creative than other fields, potentially. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong. But once you realize that that's what's happening and that's happened a lot, and I've been the person to replace somebody before and how that feels, you understand that with an empathetic view, how that feels for that editor or that entity, that creative, and even reaching out to that person, hey, you did a great job. It's nothing to do with you. Yeah. And then understanding what's happening there, I think helps with your ego and how to manage other people's egos. Because you realize that more often than not, it actually has very little to do with you um, being replaced. As far as managing somebody's ego and, and working within those confines, it's very tricky. Um, and you just, it's kind of trial and error. And I, I don't remember who I was talking to about this, but basically there's, uh, at this point in my career, it takes a minute to figure out when, pe when people are gonna gel with me and not. And you either kind of get where I am and what I'm doing and you like that, or you 100% don't like that. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Yeah. Uh, there's someone that you do like mm -hmm. and you'll find that person. Mm -hmm. But I have, pushing against that wall, mm -hmm. um, I used to sort of conform and sort of turn into um, 
chameleonize myself to be what that person wanted. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it sometimes or more often than not made them more angry because yeah. they're like, no, what are you doing? Yeah. I don't want that from you. Yeah. And so um, now just accepting that and, and honestly seeing patterns is really fun now. Now I go, oh, I see where this person came through the, their career path. Yeah. They're not going to like me. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or they are going to like me. Yeah. And once you can sort of see that and know going in and, you know, put your best foot forward, but understand that likely because of where they came from or who they've worked with or whatever, there may be a predisposed uh, notion that they won't like you. And, and creatively, you can't take that to heart. That can't hurt your sensibilities or your ability to do the job or, or how good you are in creative. You just have to sort of say, yeah, great. I'll see you on the next one. Yeah. Hopefully I'll see you on the next one. Um, we're hitting a lot on on something like we're kind of talking. It's adjacent to what we're talking about, mm -hmm. which is the idea of compromise. Mm -hmm. So, being an independent contractor, and and I know that's changed for you recently, which I, I want to get into. Yeah. But being an independent contractor, having your own business, so like, I mean, nobody's giving you business. There's no paycheck, and you know, I I laugh like when I was at my last like job where I worked for someone else, I so took for granted the wonderful sense of just like. I don't care what happens. Like this, this company is going to exist. No, I'm always going to get a paycheck yeah. a, a, until, until you're not in that situation. You're like, where does money come from? Like, how do I make money? So what has the role of compromise been in, in your, um, in, in how you've developed professionally and, and also where you are today. And for, I want to be very specific about it. Um, cause when I was, when we were doing a podcast with uh, Taylor and by the way, shout out to the pit studio. We're in, uh, it's really cool to be in this space and I'm thankful of Taylor for, for giving us this. Um, when I was talking to Taylor about compromise, he was like, oh, that's really broad, man. And I was like, fair enough. Okay. So let me, let me, let me, let me tamp it down for you. Taking work that you don't want to take because you need to make bill, or you need, uh, need to do it or working on projects you don't like, or working with people you don't like, or more working with brands that you don't like, or doing things that make you feel bad. Like, um, or maybe even that you, uh, you object, object with from like a moral or ethical mm -hmm. standpoint. Um, what's the role of compromise been with you as being an independent contractor? Mm -hmm. So you hit on like six different ways that I compromise <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and that's fine. Um, you know, you and I both come from hardcore punk background. Mm -hmm. So speaking on your last point of how do you, uh, reconcile working with brands or people that do you fundamentally disagree with their position in the world? I've always, I mean, I remember the first job I was like, well, well, welcome to advertising kid. Yeah. And the, the line was, it was for a major food company that comes in a can. Mm -hmm. And the line was, I'm probably going to say the brand, but the, the line was, there's a full serving of vegetables in every can. Mm -hmm. There's more to it. Mm -hmm. And there was not more to it. That There's more sugar in that can than any food should be had. I mean, everything about it was, how can they, you legally say that there's a full serving? Because there is. There's a full serving of tomato. And I was like, this is the worst industry I've ever been involved in. Yeah. And I went to think about it and I went back and there's, you know, many, many sort of reconcile uh, moments you have to do with yourself when you're in any industry and, and figuring out if this is morally something that I can stand for. Mm -hmm. And I worked really hard on, on figuring out if this is something that I really wanted to do. To do. And the, the uh, result of that was basically, I don't know if there's a, a role where I can have um, as much time to do other things, like play in bands, um, 
you know, make side documentaries and films and vi videos, YouTube channels and all that such. And that will pay me um, a good enough wage to have a family and own a home and do all of that extra stuff, but be present for my children, be available for my wife, all of that stuff. And I know that when they pay me, I'm going to do, in a capitalist society that we live in, I'm going to do more good with the money that I get paid, or I can trust the money that I get paid more than I can trust you paying somebody else. Mm -hmm. I know that what I'm getting, the money I'm getting paid goes to the places that I want it to go to, goes to businesses I want to uh, invest in, goes to um, be, you know, being in bands, buying art, um, being a part of communities that I want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. and, and that's how I was able to reconcile being in a what's considered an anarchist punk community from the start and moving into a capitalist society where I have to make uh, money to buy bread mm -hmm. to, so that my kids can be like, oh, cool, I'm not hungry, which, by <laughs> right. the way, doesn't happen very often. Right. Um, so compromise is, as far as from a um, ideological perspective, that's how I do it. And some, you know, the punk version of me may be like, that's bullshit, man. You sell out. Yeah. But also... I think that that punk, if I was to sit down with him in this capacity and say, hey, man, just hear me out because mm -hmm. you work at Starbucks right now. Mm -hmm. And is that actually better working at Starbucks right now than getting paid to be your own boss and spend money at your friend's gyms and go see your friend's bands and be in a band where you get to go hang out with your friends mm -hmm. basically whenever you want? Um, and I think the guy, you know, 20 years ago, we go, Man, that job sounds pretty sick. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how I'm able to reconcile that or compromise with that. Compromise with, I think your other question was um, compromise uh, creative integrity within the actual projects. Mm -hmm. I think that that's just a, a product of, of working on a creative project with other people. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that uh, you have to have a vision and you have to be willing to compromise. Mm -hmm. So your vision is this is what I want to make. Okay, great. That sounds awesome. But we also have to do this. Great. But I'll do that if I can do this. Right. And and that is the forefront of almost any, I, I would say probably any project, business related at all, but mm -hmm. in creative, 100%. Specifically in creative, um, well, honestly, in any creative. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of uh, discussions with friends about, well, what if you were just paid money to just make whatever you want? And I was like, how, where do you see that happening in the world? Mm -hmm. Where do you see someone, there's maybe two directors on the face of this planet that are just given money and they can make whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And that'd probably be Christopher Nolan and Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. And everyone else is answering to somebody who has the money. Mm -hmm. So unless I'm self-funding it, which is also another reason why I love uh, working in the industry I work in, I get paid and I can self-fund projects that I don't have to answer to anybody on mm -hmm. because I'm paying for it. Right. And whenever I, whenever the money, the answer is always where the money is, mm -hmm. most often than not. Mm -hmm. And so if I don't have to answer to the money because I'm self-funding a documentary project I want to work on or a YouTube video or I can, you know, podcast, if I don't have to answer to somebody, then I can make whatever I want. Mm -hmm. And there's not another place... And I don't see myself being a billionaire anytime soon. So I don't think I'll be making full-length feature films where I don't have to answer to anybody mm -hmm. um, on, a, on the Hollywood level. Uh, so do I want to be doing that? I don't know. Probably not because I don't necessarily – if I'm going to make a film, 
it has to be compromise and that's fine, but I better find the people that I can compromise with that uh, enjoy me as a creative entity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. Compromise is a, is an interesting topic. Cause like, it sounds like said in one way, it could be like, Oh, compromise. We should learn how to compromise. And said another way, it could be like compromise, like, never compromise. It's like, listen, it's such a, it's such a vague term. Mm -hmm. um, for me, as I've been coming up, like I'd say in the business world, there's been times where I've compromised, where I've taken pieces of work based on the paycheck versus like, I, I, I can recall for this company, uh, for Cadence, there's definitely one piece of work where I was like, yeah, I took that for the wrong reasons. It's all about the money and the, the, the orbits I was going to be able to be in and what money would come from that. It was purely a financial decision. And I would never have made that decision had I not started to make the decision of hiring more people. And suddenly I was like, well, I have to bring in more money. So I have to take this work. And it was interesting because I didn't really think about it at the time. I was like, oh yeah, of course I'll take that. And I was just doing it. And the whole thing blew up in my face. It's a piece of business that we lost because I, I compromised taking the business, but I didn't compromise my process. And I was like, listen, man, you are walking in the wrong land right now. And if you're going to walk in that land, you better adopt, you better adapt to what you've signed up for. Yeah. And I refused to do that. So I was like, I was definitely trying to have my cake and eat it too. Yeah. Totally blew up on my face. A huge mess that I ended up having to deal with and the company had to deal with. And it all worked out well in the end. I learned a, a really important lesson. And I don't want to tell people to not follow the money or whatever. Like everyone's business is different. Where I'd say compromise where I was like, I know what I'm doing right now is actually against my North Star. Mm -hmm. And I'm also not willing to, to play to the rules of the environment that I've now opted into. I made the decision to do that, but I won't play by the rules. This is a lose situation for them, for us, for yeah. everyone. And it was terrible. Yeah. It's not as black and white for that, but like compromise is an interesting thing because it's kind of like the only thing I say that I won't compromise at this point is like moral or, moral or ethical uh, uh, things because I don't think you can really be authentic. If you, you can't compromise, um, you can't be authentic in your work if you're compromising on moral or ethical things. Mm -hmm. But it also means that your moral and ethical things shouldn't be these like super broad, outrageous, yeah. like, um, you know, like whatever ridiculous yeah. thing, yeah. but more like, oh no, specifically, this is what I mean, yeah. moral and ethical. Yeah. Um, as an example, uh, my company might work with uh, something that has to do with like processing animals, but I will never do that, yeah. right? Like I, I'll never be a part of that. Totally. Like I would never work personally for a tobacco company, yeah. uh, but like my company might end up doing it. Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting idea about morals and ethics because also like when you run a company uh for myself like i don't want to impose my moral and ethics on other people mm -hmm. so for example that's why i say hey i wouldn't personally do coaching or training around a company that had to do with meat but mm -hmm. people in my company eat meat, yeah. right and they should have the right to make that kind of moral ethical decision mm -hmm. i don't smoke drink or do any kind of drugs but people in my company do and they should have that right to make those decisions yeah. especially if they're selling the business operating on the business and that's where like morals and like ethics, like you have to really understand yourself and why you have those morals and ethics and where they come from and hold up that mirror. It's so important to understand what compromise actually is for you. Yeah. And also just, I mean, you're saying that to me right now and I also don't drink or smoke or do drugs. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if someone was like, hey, we want to pay you a bunch of money to do a cigarette commercial. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'd have to link, think real long and hard about it mm -hmm. because I know that it's going to get made without me. Yeah. And is that person going to spend their money better than me? Right. It's not <laughs> as simple as like, I'm about this. So, so this it's yeah. like, and also like, what if you were in a slow season? What yeah. if you're in a tough spot? Like, should our, 
should our ethical and moral decisions only be based when we're in our most secure place or should we base our morals and ethics in this space where it's like, well, if I was compromised and I had zero dollars in the bank and something was going on, would I still take this work? It's not that we have to solve moral conundrums (laughs) in this conversation, but it's even when you're an established business, moral and ethical decisions are very difficult. And the idea of compromise is something that's like in flux at all times. Yeah, I mean, big pharma would be really hard for me. Mm. Um, but then you watch big pharma commercials and you go, good Lord, that's easy. Mm. I mean, literally, there's just people walking through fields and sitting in toilet and hot tubs and stuff. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's literally, that would be really easy. Yeah. And I guarantee you that that editor is A level yeah. and is at a huge place and is moving on and making a David Fincher film. I'd say that twice because I know that person, but yeah. like, or is moving on and making a, uh, um, Oliver Stone film. Right. So why, why should it be them and not me? But also Big Pharma? Yeah. Yeah, it'd be really hard. It's not, dude, it's not, it's so not easy. I, I remember at one point I was in a conversation with an executive and they were telling me about something and I, I won't get into the details. They were telling me about something that was in the news. And so it was like, I was directly working with the people that were involved and they're asking me all sorts of advice and thoughts. And then I'd go home uh, from work. And then my friends were like, yeah, did you see that thing on the news about that company? I was like, oh yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. And like, at one point, one of my friends was like, you're being strangely quiet about this as someone who I know is very opinionated. And I was like, I can't get into it. And I still to this day, I've got like a, a I, you know, I can't speak about yep. any of my client work, but I can't speak about that one specifically. There are times where I've been like in conversations where people are talking about the thing that I know have intimate knowledge about. And I'm like, I don't disagree with you, but I also don't fully agree because I actually know some of the things that are going on in the background. I know decisions that are being made to make it less worse than it could be. Yep. Like, there's so many st- there's so many things and some people also might not choose to do jobs like you and I do where they have these moral decisions but i would say even like there's decisions in all sorts of different kinds of businesses if, for example i worked in the social services for so a long time people's minds would be blown if you knew what kind of level of compromise that happens there as well so you can put yourself in a situation where you're working with corporations and you have to make those decisions but at least at least if you're honest with yourself, you know what bear you're wrestling with. Mm-hmm. But I would suggest that most businesses and most careers have some level of this, maybe even worse levels than that, that maybe people aren't as honest with themselves about. And it, you should hold up a mirror about that process. Absolutely. I mean, you brought up um, you brought up something that uh, reminded me of um, when you say your friends, where you were in the room and your friends were talking about it. Thing. That happens to me. Quite often, they'll be like, "I, you know, I really think they made that stupid thing on the Super Bowl." I'm like, "I know exactly who, how they made it. I know the guy that cut it, mm-hmm. like personally. Do you want me to Instagram him?" <laughs> and you know, that's so stupid. And like, or uh, there's a um, there's a big thing right now happening, and it's a big. Uh, I think it's very important that it happens. Um, socially conscious advertising, mm-hmm. and I don't. I, I'm a, you know. My political beliefs are irrelevant, mm-hmm. but I'm a progressive thinker. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of socially conscious advertising that is uh, flag waving mm-hmm. that is not true. And we all know that. We've seen the hashtags of this company says happy pride month, but actually they are funding anti-gay legislation in mm-hmm. Texas or something. Right. So we all know that stuff. But what we don't understand is that in advertising, specifically at the project level, there's a lot of socially conscious work 
that's being hap- that's happening, but it's it's it rides a very fine line of okay, are we just doing this because we want to do this? And if we're doing that, aren't we just making the 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 notion the, the conversation worse? Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to get into specifics because it's such an in depth conversation. This is part of sitting in the room and talking creative. Um, mm-hmm. Is who who do we show and when mm-hmm. and and is that best from a not I mean the, the brand irrelevant. I a lot of the times I'm thinking from a socially conscious perspective. Is it the best moment to put this out when maybe you shouldn't have a voice in this conversation and just sit this one like the people say all the time about Pepsi? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they should have sat that one out. Whew, that one was brutal though, man. <laughs> they probably should have sat it out. And yes. for some reason, no one sat in the room and said, hey, think about sitting this one out. Mm. And I've lost a lot of work because I've said, hey, think about sitting this one out. Mm-hmm. Or maybe what you're trying to say is best done in the voice and not in the visual mm-hmm. or vice versa. Maybe what you're trying to say is done in the in the visual and don't say it in the voice. Mm-hmm. And, well, what's, what's the difference between the two? Tell me. Uh, so meaning the voiceover. So like the actual script says, mm-hmm. we are doing this for this reason. Right. And then you show something that is just so on the nose right. that it's almost offensive. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, I'm always, and I understand what I, who I am and what I look like. Mm-hmm. I understand that I'm a white mm-hmm. cis male, mm-hmm. but I also understand that I am empathetic and progressive and socially conscious and that comes from my roots in punk rock, all sorts of, you know, hardcore punk, all sorts of stuff where I am socially conscious. And I look at certain instances of creative and say, this may not be doing the thing you think it's doing, it helps you in the room with the client because you're saying we're going to do this for this reason, mm-hmm. but in the, in the end game, I don't. I think it's actually reinforcing negative stereotypes, mm-hmm. and here's the reason why I think that. And I probably should not be having that conversation since I'm being paid to push the buttons. Mm-hmm. But that's where my moral obligation steps in, and I say, hey, I just want you to look at this for a second, mm-hmm. and um, have a step. Try to step back for a minute. And, and look at this exact creative and what you're saying and what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And does that actually work or does that give us a sense that you're waving flags that you don't actually believe in? It's a real interesting thing that you're talking about. Like, so I talk about this a lot with people, um, whether or not companies should weigh in on politics at all. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, and uh, it was just a podcast came out this week with a guy named Dan Wales. We we're talking about like companies can say all they want to say about this and that. And it, whether they mean or not mean it is one thing, but it's like, well, where are your quarterly results? When the rubber hits the road, it's about companies exist largely like big entities exist for shareholders and you know to make a product or do this or do that but at the end of the day it's like you have to produce results should companies talk about politics it can we also preface that with most companies now realize that millennials buy things based on if the company is socially conscious right right can companies be socially conscious good question so like I, i find it Super interesting. I'll give you an example that that one piece of work that I took on that I was talking about. Mm. Um, I remember in the the first group meeting that I was in, um, the 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 person I decided to work with and, and this person's team, um, 
I, I tell this story a lot because it's, it's telling for like this moment of realization of what I'd stepped into. There was an executive in the room who had talked about the great work that they were doing around diversity and inclusion and did something that was very difficult where they'd actually were able to break it down to, and by doing this, this is how it's actually affected our results from a financial perspective, mm -hmm. was able to actually take all of this work that seems a little touchy-feely, but really said, and this is how we funneled it down to actual results mm -hmm. for, for us and for the shareholders. Incredible piece of work. Unbelievable presentation, super well thought out, well researched, well spoken. And all the other executives at the table were on their phones or on their iPads, chatting to each other. And afterwards, I talked to the leader uh, in the room and said, Hey, and I explained what I saw. I was like, Hey, from just like a therapeutic point of view or a coaching point of view, like that was sending a crazy message. And um, the leader was like, I honestly don't really believe in that stuff, all this kumbaya stuff. And this this person is from a marginalized group as well. It was like, you know, I'm from this marginalized group and I've had to like fight my way up and blah, blah, blah. And I think this is like, it kept, they kept saying kumbaya. It's like, I don't believe in this kumbaya stuff. In fact, I think we invest too much money to do this. And in fact, I'm actually looking to reduce funding. Now, of course, I'd just taken all this piece of work and I was like, good God, what have I done? Why am I working with this terrible yeah. person? Funnily enough though, well, not funnily enough, Give it a few years later, I'm, I'm not working with the, the person. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the uh, protests and uh, action around Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. came up and this person puts out their impassioned Black Lives Matter uh, acknowledgement on yeah. their LinkedIn and, yeah. and the company's doing all that. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, God, you are so fucking full of shit. Oh my God. And man, I was in this conversation, da, da, da. And I thought about it a lot and just thought, well, actually, this is a massive organization, and I bet you the vast majority of people who work there are not racist, like, or are, are, are not intentionally racist yeah. or don't come from a racist socially background. Conscious. Yeah, they're, they're socially conscious. Yeah. They care. Yes. In fact, I bet the vast majority of people who work there yeah. support Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. I bet you the vast majority of people who work there feel good that their company's saying that. Mm -hmm. So why shouldn't a company say that? And and I could say it's all about like marketing and trying to get like eyes and all yeah. that. But if I think of people in the organization who probably the vast majority of them are progressive and would want the company they work for to say that, is that a bad thing, even though I factually know the leader didn't believe in it? Yeah. And it might just be about marketing to get eyes and just mm -hmm. to get millennials to sure. buy their products. So is it wrong? Is it right? Or is it impossible to even get in that space? I think it just depends on the moment and and <clears throat> what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And um, we all know that Pepsi did it wrong. Whoa, that was the, uh, and, for anyone who doesn't know, can, can you, do you want me to tell him or do you want to you tell You go him? ahead and tell him. So like it was Kendall Jenner, was that the, it? Uh, the youngest one. We're not good at this. We're looking at the millennial. Kylie? I don't know. Spencer, can <laughs> you Kylie. Look at, I think it's Kylie. It one, of, one of the, the well, Jenner. Don't fact check. Okay, Jenner. please fact check. So it was like a protest and there was a police line and there was people with like signs that had vague political statements like start the conversation. Change. Change, start the conversation. <laughs> or uh, move, yeah, something like that. And then like they came up against the police line and then the Jenner, whichever Jenner it was, walked- It's Kendall. Kendall. Kendall, Kendall yeah. Jenner walked from the, the crowd of protesters over to the line of police and offered the police officer yeah. a co or a Pepsi. Yeah. Sorry, Coke. A uh, Pepsi, and the the police officer take them like they all have a, re a moment of refreshment. Yeah, and Pepsi brings everyone together. <laughs> so, and I don't understand. And like, I'm not. You know, there's many, many advertising and and there's marketing professionals that clearly worked on that project and right. I'm very proud of it in many ways. Right. And it just didn't ring with the broader public. It didn't work. They got eviscerated. Eviscerated. For it. And so I don't understand. 
honestly, how it got that far down the pipeline without someone saying, hey, just a weird thing here. Maybe you want to think about this. Anyone getting a weird hit that maybe this isn't the right thing to put out in this moment to talk about this instance that Pepsi could somehow bring us all together? Um, that maybe like some sort of beverage is not the solution to these bigger problems. Um, I'm shocked by that. And it is actually one of my uh, sort of, uh, you talk about North North Stars, mm-hmm. is one of my North Stars like, okay, I need to be the hey guys yeah. in this moment just so that someone said it. Well, uh, okay, I've got a question for you though, because mm-hmm. you brought up something else where it's hurt you in your career being that, that person. Yeah. You're like, hey, everyone. Is it possible that there were one or multiple people saying, hey, this is not good, and they were just being exited out the door? There's possible that there were lots of people doing that. Mm-hmm. There's possible. It's possible that there were no, no one doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's possible that, um, you know, it's possible that all that it, that exists in that instance is yes people, mm-hmm. like people that say, yeah, yeah, I love this idea. It's great. We're going to bring the world together. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't, we don't really know. We may end up finding out the story about it later on somewhere down the, the pipe, but um, the thing in advertising that's really, as far as what I know, and I'm again, I'm not an agency professional. I don't run an advertising, a large advertising agency that has Pepsi. Right. I can only really surmise that there's just so many people involved in any project of that magnitude. This is what I'm getting from me, all of my projects. Mm-hmm. That really the only time you have a chance to say no mm-hmm. is quickly and more or less in private. Mm-hmm. So like in, for me in an, in an edit bay, I'm at the end of the process. So if I was editing that, I'd be like, anyone getting a weird, th- anyone <laughs> getting a weird thing on this? But they've already shot a multi-million dollar campaign. Yeah. I mean, what are you what are you going to shelve it? Which also has happened. Uh, you know, multi-million dollar campaigns being shelved because something didn't work out right. I worked on a car commercial. This is not socially conscious, so we're moving in a different direction now. But worked on a car commercial very early in my career. And uh, they shot an amazing shot. It was a almost a hundred thousand dollars shot. They mm-hmm. slung a car below a helicopter, mm-hmm. flew it across the the uh, the bay uh, by the by the Bay Bridge, basically. So in San Francisco, and it was flying from Oakland to San Francisco in the day. And we get back to the edit bay, and we're cutting this whole thing together. And we're like, "Where does this part fit with the helicopter?" And they're like, "Well, it's to get them from that side of the the." Like the, in the country to the city, I'm like well they end the country at uh, at uh, night or in the day, and you're flying into the city at night because the next shot's at night. But you're but how you shot it was during the day, and it's going the wrong direction, and you can see the city. And I remember the EP just goes, oh fuck, don't it, it's got to work. And I was like, all right. You can get you can get to the point where it was a shot that could not be replaced. Mm-hmm. We needed to have the shot. They sold the shot through. It needs to be in place. Um, and so what we ended up doing is actually having post production cut out the helicopter, make it a VFX shot, put it going into the city, changing the whole perspective on the shot, all sorts of stuff. So we ended up making it work with a congruence perspective, but really that no one had seen that until we got to edit. And when you're working on a major, you know. $500,000 commercial and the you know almost $100,000 shot is the one that's really the problem and the only person to bring it up is me at the end uh then um you really have a problem and that this was a job that went swimmingly yeah. this was my first this is a this is a commercial that was my first award-winning commercial right. 
it won best editing. It it didn't win best directing or producing or won best editing. No one knew about this story. Mm-hmm. In fact, all they knew about it was that it was, you know, this this place I worked was awesome. They were a bunch of old BMI, uh, motocross guys. Yeah. They'd had this saying called, oh, that's 10 tenths. And I was like, what, what the hell is 10 tenths? And, you, you know, in a creative department, there's a lot of interesting words being thrown around. And they say that's the coolest thing they've ever seen. Right. I'd never heard 10 tenths. I was like, what is 10 tenths? It's like, you know, you know, 10 out of 10. Like top, like 100%. This is the best, 10 tenths. And I'd be like, wow. <laughs> so we went around the rest of the time going, this is 10 tenths. And it was one of the jobs where I really got to understand my role from a larger perspective, from pushing buttons to then joining into the larger creative uh, position. And that's where I gained the confidence to then run rooms, understand where my place was in the, in the structure of um, building creative and being more than someone who sits in front of the computer and pushes buttons. Um, I, I ended up changing the entire direction of the music, changing the entire direction of the, the visual uh, sen- sensibilities of the project in post-production. So in the after they've captured everything, um, the, the director's a brilliant action director. The story was lacking because they, you know, didn't see the shot going into the right, in the building, into the city at the right time. So I was able to then step into a role where I was like, okay, we're gonna change how this interacts. How does the client feel about this? This is amazing. Yeah. Cool, great. Let, let's go in this direction. And thus, uh, we were rewarded for it. I didn't learn it until a year later that we had won Best Editing, and then I was psyched and got to get psyched with everybody else. And um, But it was my first uh, award-winning thing, and I felt, a, a, big sense of accomplishment having changed the direction of a piece by just speaking up. Yeah, and that idea of speaking up, uh, you know, uh, we talk about this a lot. Um, Billy Rubin from Half Off uh, uh, gave this interview to Vice however many years ago, and I'll, I'll slaughter the quote, so I'm not gonna even try, but basically they, he was asked, what's something that you learned about from the punk scene, or what's something that you learned in the punk scene that hasn't served you well in your professional career? And it was that, and he said something akin to that my opinion on everything mattered. <laughs> He's like, when I went into the professional world, I mean, I came up in punk thinking like what you think is super important. He was like, realistically, what I think about most things is absolutely not important. Who cares what I think? But I've been given this inflated sense of like, I should always put my opinion forward. And it caused me tons of unnecessary clashes and waves. And what I had to learn was, well, my opinion on some things at some times actually might be the most important opinion in the room, but nobody's going to care if you're always a person like, blasting off about every little thing. He's like, I had to really learn how to do that. Now, this is for like the punk nerds out there. Like, you know, if you know, like the beef between between uh, half off and youth of today, you know, it's like Billy Rubin and Ray Kapow. It's like that's the least important conversation that's ever happened on the planet, unless you are into youth today or half off or both like I am. And you're like, ooh, that's (laughs) that's so captivating. But it's so interesting because it's like who's a poser, who's not, who's fake, who's not. It's like none of these things matter. They're the most important thing when you're 17 years old or 18 or 20 or 30, <laughs> like whatever, 30, 30 40, <laughs> but, but like it doesn't really matter. But you, when you come up in the scene where things like that actually dominate like a conversation and like you talk about it, of course you're going to go into the, the business world and have some difficulty with it. Yeah. What's interesting here is like you learning to hone and pick your spots about when you're like, Actually, I'm right now in this moment, the most important voice, and I'm going to say the thing that matters. You know, you said something about you were working with somebody who, and you felt immediately there's something happened and you felt dirty. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that 
if I start to feel dirty, there's something happening and I have to figure out why I feel dirty. And then I have to figure out, okay, do I feel dirty just because I'm being a jerk and I don't like the person I'm working for for whatever personal reason? Or, you know, or do I feel dirty because I'm doing something that actually I think is wrong for the business, for the creative, for me, for the person, the creatives that I trust that are sitting next to me, the, the uh, art director, the, the writer. And if I start to feel dirty, I've know, I know that it's time to talk about something. Mm. And then it's just about how do we talk about that in a way that is least offensive to the creative, least offensive to the business itself, mm-hmm. and least offensive to myself. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, I feel dirty. I need to talk about why what we're doing in this moment feels dirty. Yeah. Why, why a full serving of vegetables in every can maybe isn't the best thing to say when relating to canned food. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's another angle easiest thing to make guys uh, it's sort of healthy yeah. <laughs> what i don't know whatever it is maybe Moder- there's nothing in that moment. moderately healthy <laughs> maybe there's nothing in that moment to fix that product but if you're starting to feel dirty maybe there's a conversation to be had and that conversation doesn't mean everybody stop everything this is the wrong way yeah. that conversation could be positioned in a million different ways it could be hey does that word work with you right there because like what we're seeing what we're saying are two different things or they're the same thing and maybe we're driving home the wrong message mm-hmm. I'm getting a weird feeling on this mo- part, uh, moment in the piece. So I think that you're hitting on something where it's like, maybe you don't have to speak up for everything. Mm-hmm. If I spoke up for every single thing, time, I was like, I am not happy. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be working on this. Yeah. I, w- we would, I would not have a job. Yeah. If, but I am figuring out that when I do speak up, there's a, there's a reason I'm getting a hit. And I, that's the, the terrible, someone said that to me once, and I hate it as a term. Is anyone getting a weird hit on this? I hate it as a term. But if I start to feel dirty, I guess that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And I need to just talk about it. And it doesn't have to be red flag, red flag, red flag. It can be, hey, I'm just a guy here pushing the buttons and listening to the story, but this is what I'm getting a sense of from that. Mm-hmm. And then they could say, I think you're I think you're wrong. I think you're not working out. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. I said my piece. And more often than not, they go, I think, I think that I think maybe you're reading into it too far. And then I've said to that person that bit. So mm-hmm. now that person has to think about that bit. Mm-hmm. And then a week goes by and they go, you know what, let's remove that piece mm-hmm. or let's adjust what we're doing there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't have to be ones and zeros. It doesn't have to be red flag, shut it all down. Mm-hmm. It can be, hey, think about this when, we're, when you watch this tonight mm-hmm. and think about it tomorrow when we watch it in the morning. And then if it's still fine, it's, that's my problem. Yeah. If it's not still fine, let's figure out a solution. It's funny you're saying that because as you're saying that, that like, well, I've at least put it in their head and now they're going to think about it afterwards. As a guy who's like, you know, I, I, I take a lot of leaps in life as you know, like I, I take a lot of leaps. I have to like really push into things. Like I was just telling Taylor when I started this business, it's not like I could talk to any of my friends about it. Cause they're like, I don't even know what you do. Like, what is yeah. it? I was totally on my own. It was the hardest move. And the first two years were just brutal work. Mm-hmm. But because of that, I developed a certain kind of like, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And, I, and I, I can say very comfortably, I totally know what I'm doing. Yeah. But knowing what I'm doing, I do know what I'm doing on a base level, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that something I'm doing couldn't be way better by making the slightest change or a major change or whatever yeah. it is. So the, I know what I'm doing, I've got this 100%, but damn, I want people who can like augment that, change that, push that, like get me to a higher space, like the whole idea of getting to greatness. Yep. So when you just said that, I was like, oh yeah, that's what like, so uh, Tammy who works in our yep. company leads our marketing. 
um, Tammy definitely she'll like mention something and and I'll be like, no, I don't think so. And then I'll just be like, days later, I'll call her up. I'm like, yeah, you were right about that. And I realized like, gosh, she's pulling the Jenkins on. She's me doing now. a great job. Okay. And in fact, it's it's something I think that uh, that runs rampant in marketing mm -hmm. is uh, the is this. I had a very close friend of mine once said to me, um, you've had him on your podcast. And he said to me, extremely close friend. Mm -hmm. And he says, I don't think marketing does anything. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I was like, what, what, do you, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And he goes, what, what, do, what does it do? And I was like, why are you wearing Nikes? He's like, I don't know. They look cool. Why do you think they look cool? Well, they look cool. I'm looking at them. Well, the reason they look cool is because somebody's decided that they looked cool. They put them into a good advertisement to make them look cool. They put them in good packaging. They have the good colors. And then everyone else is telling you they look cool. Mm -hmm. But you're not, they, you haven't made it. There's likely very little decisions you've made in life on purchasing something mm -hmm. that you haven't made because of some sort of marketing at some point. Mm -hmm. And this person fundamentally disagrees with me. And I say, listen, why did you buy the VW? Oh, it's the best card in the research. What research did you do? What did you read? Where did you see that? All of that has been crafted to make you want to buy that device, that thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, down to the coffee we're drinking. Like, this looks cool. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, I would drink this. Mm -hmm. I would go into this establishment mm -hmm. because it has an aesthetic that, it please, that pleases me. Yeah. All of that is marketing. You can't get away from it. There's not a business, in my opinion, that exists without marketing, has some sort of marketing in some capacity mm -hmm. to get people to like it. So I think that it goes back to uh, being a marketing individual, someone who thinks from a larger perspective of how does someone interact with this business, this product, this, for you coaching. Mm -hmm. So Tammy goes, hey, think about this for a second. Mm -hmm. And you're like, ah, that's what? And then it's in your brain and you're like, man, is someone else thinking that way? Because she just thought of something that I wasn't thinking of. Like, you were right. And that, I think, just comes from a specific type of mindset that is um, it's pretty smart. It's a smart way of being. And, in, and the way that she did it is, is how I would do it. Incredibly smart. Yeah. Because it's not saying, red flag, stop everything. Mm -hmm. Just think about this for a week. So it's funny you say that because we were talking about uh, just the cards for the, um, for the podcast. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, again, I know what I'm doing. Like, I really know what I'm doing. Like, I actually am very confidently, I know what I'm doing. If you ask me, do I know what I'm doing as a coach or a therapist? I really know what I'm doing. Do I know what I'm doing as a business leader? Yeah. Do I know what I'm doing as a leader? Yeah, definitely. Like, I'm, I'm confident there. Do I know what I'm doing for marketing? I don't know. I'm a, what the hell do I know? Like, I know in generalities. Yeah. And I had this very strong opinion. And I was like, this about the cards going forward yeah and in the moment she's like okay cool yeah and then <laughs> sends me an email and i was yes. like i actually don't know if that's or i don't think that i don't think that's necessary mm -hmm. and i remember reading it and being like oh, you think how could you not think this thing mm -hmm. that matters to me in this moment for totally no good reason doesn't matter <laughs> and i was like oh. i bristled at it a little bit and then like two days later i was like it totally doesn't matter like i don't even know why i care about this and it was such an interesting way of putting it because, like, I ended up thinking about it. And I think, like, managing, like, egos, confidence, like, arrogance in some spaces, vision has a lot to do with how you manage that. And it sounds like in your role, like, that, like mastering that and continuing to master it matters. I did want to hit on that marketing piece. Yep. Um, listen, man, someone who's never listened to, I don't know, like, whatever band, like, hardcore band, punk band. Yep. If you put it to a normal person who's not part of it, they'd be like, oh, this is terrible. This is awful. Yeah. 
what makes something good or bad has a lot to do with how it's socialized with mm -hmm. you. And you, we could call that marketing. We'd call it socializing, whatever it is. I remember the first time I listened to Youth of Today, I wasn't like, oh, this is my favorite <laughs> band. I can't believe this. Yeah. I was like, oh, what is this insanity? Mm -hmm. Different than like, say, a minor threat. Or mm -hmm. actually, when you listen to um, Scream for Change by Uniform Choice, yeah. almost anyone could be like, there's something special about mm -hmm. that, right? Or like Minor Threat, you could do something special. Minor Threat that. specifically. Right, or, or Bad Brains. There are certain bands where it's like, yeah, but there are a lot of bands that are just a few degrees off of that where you're like, oh, that's terrible. Yep. Until you listen to, until or until you've learned about the culture and the culture gives you indicators mm -hmm. about what's cool, what's not cool and why it's cool and yep. understanding why something's cool. Yep. Like why is uh, Start Today one of the greatest records, not hardcore records, one of the greatest records of all time. Sure. There are a lot of cultural factors that make that such an yeah, important yeah. record. Yeah. Why is Youth of Today, from my perspective, like one of the most important bands, especially based on the fact that like maybe some of those ideas were aspirational rather yeah. than practical. Yeah. Like why? Well, there's so many cultural factors to it. Like there's so much stuff that I think you could boil down to cultural, so how you're socialized, but maybe even just like call it bluntly, like marketing yeah. that make it cool. Mm -hmm. Why do I get excited when I see the revelation uh, star? <laughs> yeah. Right? Marketing. Marketing. Yeah. yeah. Um, totally. And culture. I mean, with that, it's been all around so long that now you know and you've been taught and conditioned that anything that comes out with the star on it's going to feel a certain way mm -hmm. um, or, or gone through a certain rigorous but yes, yeah, it's, it's marketing. Yeah. For more or less. I mean, I think about, you know, Turnstile, for instance, a lot. Because mm -hmm. I go, what? I love this. I liked this band before they were huge. I liked them on the last. I liked them when they were a very straightforward hardcore mm -hmm. band. Mm -hmm. And then the second record came out, the yellow one. I go, this record's great. And I had a big argument with the members of my old band about which record was more impressive. Um, the new American Nightmare or the new Turnstile. Not the glow on, not the new one. Mm -hmm. And I said, the Turnstile. I mean, we're talking about something that's brand new. Mm -hmm. And I love American Nightmare. There's so many things to love about that band. But the Turnstile record was doing something different. And they hadn't had the big head of steam. Mm -hmm. Then they made the film. Glow On comes out. They're on Jimmy Kimmel. They're playing all these things. Why? why? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's marketing. I don't know if it's right place, right time. But, yeah, there's a difference and there's a very subtle difference in what makes that band big and a band that sounds just like them, not as big. Well, this is, this is a, an interesting thing because like, um, first of all, I never thought they were a straightforward hardcore band. So it's interesting you say that because I think they always brought something different to the table. I felt like the first seven inches were closer to like a straightforward New York style. But I didn't like what they brought to the table. I was, <laughs> I cannot be like retroactive. Like, oh, who was like that? Yeah. Band? Not true yeah, at yeah. all. I yeah. was like, nah, but I like that they were doing something different. Totally. Um, it just wasn't, wasn't for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what I'll say is like, what is it about, about Turnstile that makes them kind of like this band of the moment, but not even the band of the moment. Cause yeah. they're, they're clearly beyond transcendent. Beyond. Yeah. yeah. Great. Transcendent. I, yeah. I think that's, that's it. It was interesting is like, Hey, they've done the work, yeah. like really did the work. Yeah. Like, you know, they, they know their stuff musically. They've honed their craft. They've toured hard. They've yeah. played hard. They put out multiple releases on smaller labels. Like they, they've worked for it. Yes. I think there's something about that versus like some like whatever flavor of the of the month band. Yeah. We're like, yeah, wow, I, I guess yeah. I like this now, you yeah. know, like I think they've well earned the attention and reverence they've yeah. gotten. Um, another piece is like I can say their last two records uh, are phenomenal, yeah. especially the latest one. Cool. And uh, the songwriting, like the approach, what they've done with it, the mm -hmm. way they've melded all their different things. It's, yep. it's phenomenal. Totally. It's, it's, I'd like to bring up one other band if we can really yeah. quick is a band that's close to my heart and close to where I come from is Trash Talk. They have a store here now, mm -hmm. 
and have transcended hardcore punk to the point where there's people at the store that go, you guys have a band? Right. And I'm like, no, nobody here knows you have a band. You're, you're more famous now for the clothing store mm -hmm. and the culture of Babylon and trash talk. Mm -hmm. And it, I'm, I like burst with pride. And they, I don't know if they know it. I've told Garrett quite a few times, mm -hmm. but uh, I don't talk to them that often, but I run into them occasionally. And the last time I ran into them, they did the turnstile pop-up. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, dude, I burst with pride that I want to play with Trash Talk. And he goes, the hardcore kids don't like us. And I was like, hardcore kids love you. Mm -hmm. And you, you, no one cares what you've moved on to. Mm -hmm. And half the kids that here don't know you have a band, you came from hardcore. Mm -hmm. I, I burst with pride the fact that they were able to transcend uh, aggressive, hard punk music mm -hmm. and make it a larger cultural phenomenon um, without necessarily adjusting from their sound, mm -hmm. their, you know, who they were as people, mm -hmm. it's super impressive. And that's all I have to say about that stuff. <laughs> I, I think that's nice, man. I mean, I really like that you, that you took that, that, um, uh, that sidebar there, uh, going back to turnstile for a sec though, yeah. and, and bringing up like American nightmare. And again, for people from the corporate world, you're like, what are these bands? <laughs> Um, I will promise you if you listen to Turnstile, you'll like it. I will mm -hmm. promise you if you listen to American Nightmare, you probably won't get it. But trust <laughs> us, they're really they're really good and they're very culturally relevant yes. for us and culturally important. Um, when American Nightmare came out, I, I know, of course, you were in, in part of the scene. Mm -hmm. uh, me being a little bit older than you, can I talk about like, how I perceived they were expected yep. or uh, um, accepted or sorry, received? So. Mm -hmm. 97 youth crew revival like real hardcore purist you know kind of thing and hardcore is a uh, terribly judgmental and clicky thing it, and it's and i have been like that and mm -hmm. i don't want to like be like other people are like that it's like people people are like that yeah, yeah it doesn't sound like blah, blah. Mm -hmm. i remember american nightmare came out and nobody wanted that to be a thing people are like this guy singing about depression we we're just talking about being in the pit with my brothers like i want to talk about that like yeah. like you know, I wanted to sound like, you know, like wide awake. What are these guys talking about? Like winter's coming, you yeah. know, like, yeah, yeah. and, um, they put out an undeniable seven inch mm. that had brilliant art. Like, I don't care for the American nightmare demo that much. Like yeah. it's fine. Sure. But the seven inch was like, it's undeniable totally. followed by another undeniable seven inch with iconic art yeah. by our friend Linus followed by an undeniable LP. Undeniable. And. And tours like crazy, mm -hmm. works for it, earns it, goes out. They do the dirt. They do the grit. Nobody cared about an American nightmare until everybody cared. And they, you could see the tipping point. We don't care. We don't care. Oh, wait. Oh, all of you care? Everyone cares. We all care. Yeah. And then I love how there was, and I think the same as with Turnstile, people are like, oh, yeah, I always cared. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, you didn't. Like, I can very comfortably say I didn't like Turnstile whatsoever totally. until the until these last two LPs. I think if I was going to say which record was more important or is a better record, mm -hmm. hands down Turnstile. Because yeah. Turnstile are, I, I want to respect each band's individuality. Turnstile are today what American Nightmare was back yes. in their early days, where yes. they're bringing something to the table where mm -hmm. people are like, wait, this is not our agreed upon sound and approach. Like we're yeah. not supposed to sound like this, this is not, yeah. they're so good. They've become undeniable. Yes. And they actually now can dictate what, mm -hmm. what the possibilities are. Yep. Not what the sound is, what the possibilities are. American nightmare did that. They dictated what the possibilities were. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was such a, they, 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 in, they stretched the realm of the possible, mm -hmm. which I think is uh, incredible. So I think the Turnstile record 100% is far superior. Mm -hmm. American Nightmare now, I think, have settled into a good groove of who they are as a band. Yes. Good for them. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and great. I'm glad they're playing and I'm glad yeah. they're reunited. Uh, Turnstile is is going to continue to innovate and grow. And yeah. then 
who knows what will happen with yeah. them in the future. The idea that there's like, um, there's only a semblance of um, permanence. Mm -hmm. There's only a, sem a semblance of, of uh, a system. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example, going back to our, pe our Pepsi conversation. Yeah. That terrible commercial got greenlit all, I remember seeing that commercial before I even knew like all of the craziness yeah. around it. And I was like, this isn't gonna go good, that is no good. Yeah. Um, that commercial, who any normal human being could look at that, and there must've been people who have been like, this is not gonna go well, yeah. gets greenlit. Yep. For a major company that should have resources and people around them to say no, that to me tells me there is no system in place. And it's not that there's no system in place for anything, but it's like whatever illusions that we have about like how things go, mm -hmm. all it takes is two people to stay quiet or one person to not say anything or a few people to take their hands off the wheel. And what we know is totally different. Yeah. And the pandemic is a great example of that. It's like, hey man, that wall that you see over there that's been here for a hundred years, you think that wall is gonna be here forever? <laughs> that wall's not gonna be here in a hundred years. Yeah. This country is gonna be different in a hundred yeah. years. Might not even exist. Like. Mm -hmm. Everything is impermanent. Yeah. And when you think about that, I think people can feel like, whoa, everything is chaos. Well, it's like, yeah, actually a little bit. That's why you need to really be like, don't coast through life. Yeah. Like keep your eyes open, understand yourself, understand the people around you, which I believe leads to the importance of really stacking the deck around you with the right kinds of people yeah. and being in the right kinds of situations. And be open to change. 100% open yeah. to change. What a great name, change. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, before your band came out I, and I heard the record, I said, uh, this is going to work well into what Arem's saying and doing and all that kind of stuff. Totally unintentionally, <laughs> but yes. I had a client who looked it up and was like, wow, wow. your band is called Change yeah. and you're all about change. And I was like- Could you be on, more on brand? Though? Oh God. It's so <laughs> Tammy's very happy. Yeah. But that being said, it's. Uh, I think that you have to look forward and, and be willing to adjust and, um, and uh, learn new skills, learn new aspects of- uh, your business and you know from my perspective this lens leads nicely to the new job that I've taken yeah. which is uh, I work now at a, a financial tech company um, as a senior creative producer which means just making doing the same thing I've been doing but uh, client side so mm -hmm. instead of trying to um, scramble for I had an instance where it happened at the end of the pandemic I had a great pen my, my career was fine during the pandemic mm -hmm. very difficult um, for most people uh, but for some reason, with editorial and repurposing video content, I was able to be successful throughout the pandemic. Hmm. The end of the pandemic happened, and then everything sort of reopens as far as productions go and people being able to work together again. And I had a, a everyone was moving. There's a the great what do they call it the great resignation, resignation yeah. which I think is a terrible name, but hmm. that's also branding. Hmm. Um, Basically, the great resignation was created to tell everyone that no one wants to work anymore, but really everyone's just looking for change. Mm -hmm. And so I, too, lost a bunch of clients who went to new places, and I, I was going to have to start over, meaning just, okay, well, let's go find some new clients and you know, go to these new places where my clients moved to, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, well, what if I want some change? What if I want to try something new? And so, And I've been doing this for a while, applying at jobs that seem fun to do and not getting anywhere. And for whatever reason, this time I got I got three jobs that came up right at the same time, and they were all jobs I really was interested in taking, and just interested in change. My kids are eight and six now; they're out of preschool. We have something where we a semblance of stability in our family life, where we can really just take the time to try to 
do something new, my wife included. She switched jobs in last April. And so we're like, okay, let's see what, what I can do. And so uh, I've sort of been interested in taking a change into this this company I'm working for is a Web 3.0 company. It's a company that's working in uh, blockchain technologies and cryptocurrencies a little bit. Um, so it's something that I want to learn because I can see that there's that on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be something that's really interesting. And it's not going away as much as I made fun of it five years ago. It's here now. Mm -hmm. And I now own my first NFT. I'm learning <laughs> and I am changing. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want to be a more well-rounded human. Uh -huh. I have a YouTube channel called Process. Uh -huh. And it's a series of videos of me just um, reflecting on things or trying something new or experiencing something or th thinking on something that has bothered me for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, you're, we're about to go eat with Andrew and he's got a lot of NFTs. Mm -hmm. And I talked to him and tried to figure out what, what, what are you doing? What is this? All right, now I need to figure it out mm -hmm. because we're moving in a way where Web 3.0 is on the horizon, decentralized, everything is on the horizon. Mm -hmm. um, you better, you need to understand it. You don't have to like it. You don't have to collect NFTs or mm. trade in Ethereum, mm. but you do. You should probably understand what's coming because it will change the w the way you um, operate in the world to a certain extent. Mm. Like the financial system may change a little bit, the um, real estate may change a little bit, uh, how you collect art may change. I mean, one of the best things, and and you laughed about NFTs, and I did too. One of the most interesting things about NFTs is that when you make that piece of art and sell it. And it gets resold and resold and resold and resold and resold. The creator still makes a percentage of every time it's resold. Mm. So from an from an artist's perspective, you may hate the concept of the non-fungible token, mm. but it's actually the most artist-friendly version of selling art in a world where Spotify and you know Apple Music exists that artists feel like they're being taken advantage of. This is a, a chance to sort of artists to reclaim their stake in financial stake in the mm -hmm. art that they create. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting when I saw I learned mm -hmm. that was part of the process. Well, you just taught me something about it. I, the <laughs> only reason I laughed is an NFT gallery has opened up by my house. <laughs> oh, interesting. And so uh, I, I, I bought a new home in the fall or in the summer and uh, I bought a home in the, in Vancouver's first neighborhood, Strathcona. And it's, it's an interesting neighborhood cause it's, it's beautiful neighborhood wonderful community feel and all that it's right outside of downtown mm -hmm. it's a cool neighborhood i'm very fortunate to do it and it's a neighborhood that traditionally has had a mix of people who uh, have like kind of high socioeconomic status and then people who are like living living poverty yeah and it's a really interesting place to live because it's like if you want something to make you feel like oh my god have i become like one of those rich <laughs> assholes like you like you, you have to like oh like there are people who are really might not don't know where the next meal uh, it's coming from living like actually around the corner sure. from me. My girlfriend and I were walking down the street and uh, we we're just outside, like we we're into like the retail area of, of uh, the community. And there's this NFT gallery and we start laughing because we we're like, well, the community is really going to shit now. Cause like we're NFT having an, like, an NFT like, gallery. It used to be like coffee shops, yep. you know, like, you know, yep. fancy coffee shops. Yep. Now it's an NFT gallery. Absolutely. And we're like, should we go in? And, and she was like, honestly, I can't like, she's like, I don't even want to know about yeah, this. Totally. Uh, that's why I laugh. Yeah. At some point it's, it's an interesting, it's definitely, I hear what you're saying. I think that, and this is going to sound weird, but I think that there's always indicators of where the world is going. Uh, big chain, you know, 
one of those indicators, this is going to sound really weird, mm -hmm. is the uh, adult uh, sex worker industry. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean sex worker from a prostitution standpoint. I mean... Mm -hmm. Um, naked people. Mm -hmm. Well, we could say we could say prostitution. Like Can I, we? I uh, well, absolutely, because I I want to be really clear. Like as a sex positive yeah. uh, company, podcast, all of that Great. kind of stuff. I think sex work is work, one hundred percent. And like, I don't think we need to couch anything on Great. that. So every time, anytime that industry um, embraces technology, mm -hmm. and they are almost always the first to embrace technology. That is that is whoa yes. And when you get that sense that they embrace that technology. Yeah. The world is moving in that direction. So if the first thing that happens is, okay, all of a sudden there's naked people in FTs, mm -hmm. you know that coming next is the rest of the world. Well, okay. Um, all you uh, pornies out there, uh, give me uh, give me some investment tips. Uh, I, I, that is fascinating. Good, a good thing to think about. All right. Let's take a step back yeah. into this new role. You had said for years... I, you, you had um, applied for jobs and mm -hmm. just hadn't been getting them. So you were kind of, I don't want to say forced, but you became an independent contractor because you weren't getting the jobs you wanted. Yeah. What well, was, what was keeping you out of those jobs? Oh man, who knows? I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's lots of speculation. I think that I became an independent contractor because I needed to change. Mm -hmm. I needed to move from San Francisco to Los Angeles. I needed to uh, move my career and thus life forward. And when I say I'm two different people, was San Francisco person and LA person, this is the catalyst, is quitting a job in San Francisco where I was making almost the same I made as a Starbucks key holder, uh, you know, running the barista. Yeah, I was doing this job. I was an assistant editor. And I needed a catalyst to change. And um, <laughs> it's oddly enough, I did a, a really funny sort of viral insider joke music video mm -hmm. called I'm the ProRes Maker. Uh, we can link it if you want. Okay. But uh, Spencer, it's funny it. enough that in, 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 some of you will look at this and I do not get it. Mm -hmm. And it's not for you. It's for a specific uh, post-production professional or production professionals. And I got some great, um, this is like very long time ago before virality was monetized really. Mm -hmm. But they were like, there was a couple of companies that were like, hey, can I give you, if we can play this at conferences, can I give you some of our gear? And I was like, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I had a piece of gear that my current employer needed or would help their workflow. They gave me from this video. And I sold it to them. And the nice thing about it is um, they gave me a little bit more money than it was worth because they wanted to pay me in installations rather than pay me a lump sum. And I was like, that's great. That works fine for me. I used that money to move myself from San Francisco, quit that job, and move to Los Angeles. And everyone that was down here talking to, I need a job when I get there. I need a job when I get there. They all said, call me when you get here. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh boy. So you have to kind of place faith that what you're going to do, that move you're going to make is going to be successful. Mm -hmm. And it may not be. We could have ended up going right back home and living with my parents and figuring it out. Right. But we came down here. We landed in a 525 square foot cottage after living in a two bedroom in San Francisco, paying the exact same amount of rent. We were nine blocks from the beach. We started talking to people. And there's some things that happen to you in your career that maybe this is not true and this is just me and my stubbornness, but there's things that happen to you when you're in your life that are big moments. People will say things to you and they, they, can, they can eat at you and destroy you. They can light a fire under your butt. And I've had a couple of those fire under your butt moments. I had a, someone once say to me, you're never going to cut commercials, so we got to figure out something else for you to do. And I was like, 
fucking kidding me? Mm-hmm. I've been working towards that for five years. I w- worked through a recession. I've made 25 cent raise in five years. Uh, and you're now gonna tell me that? And I moved to LA and the first thing I did was cut a commercial. So I don't know if, and this is again why I feel like when I moved to LA, I was a different person. Mm-hmm. That person in SF saw a, a version of me that wasn't going to cut commercials. Mm-hmm. The version of me that got down here was someone who was going to cut commercials. And I don't know if I changed or my perspective changed or just being freelance and free or attempting to do something new mm-hmm. helped me change. But when I got down here, I, I my motivations for work and what I wanted to do were slightly different. And thus, I think my appearance towards the work changed. Yeah. If that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So I don't really remember what your question was, but I'm going to try to get back to it. Uh, you were asking... I just asked why couldn't you? Why weren't you getting? Why weren't I getting positions? I think part of it is that in creative, there's actually a there's actually more opportunity in a freelance capacity than there is in a staff capacity. Mm -hmm. There's definitely more opportunity to make more money Mm -hmm. faster Mm -hmm. in a freelance capacity or contract based capacity. Um, And I've applied to a lot of jobs because I wanted to try something new because I've been doing what I've and what I've been doing what I've been doing for almost 20 years, 15-ish, I guess, 12 in a super professional capacity. Right. And so I was like, I, I just want to do something more where I have the opportunity to make bigger decisions or have a bigger uh, stake. And we were always talking about people that want to speak up and have those kind of opportunities. So I've always been looking for that. As far as not getting the positions, I don't know. I, I apply to jobs that I'm well overqualified for just to see if I can talk to somebody. In fact, actually, my biggest my biggest hurdle is getting past the first round of the algorithm of getting into front of HR's uh, eyeballs mm-hmm. and or getting that HR person to talk to me in person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand that, that that role is very difficult. My sister works in that role. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very difficult to identify uh, potential high-value employees. I think that something that's undervalued, specifically in tech, um, which is most of California is rooted in tech, is that uh, a non-traditional creative work uh, experience is actually super valuable and it's not recognized fast enough. Mm. So like when they look at my resume, my resume says I've worked for What We Do Collective for 10 years, uh, six years, I guess. Mm. And some people go, well, what have you been doing? Well, I've been contract work to work on these all of these projects. Like look at this list and you just laid, you named off four of them at the beginning of this episode. And then there's, you know, 50 more or something on my resume. And I go, look at all those different things. I'm like, well, what did you do? I did this here and I did this here. But I can't say that on a resume. I can't, my job description is not one dimensional. It's, it morphs, it's Swiss Army knives. It, it's a lot of different, uh, it's a lot of different uh, touch points that I'm entering in at that make it very difficult for someone in a HR or a recruiting position and even more so the algorithm that gets me past the first barrier to entry um, to say like, oh yeah, this person's um, qualified. Mm -hmm. And so I think that more often than not, I get the, hey, we're going to move on with somebody else because the algorithm goes, this guy's got like two jobs ever. And I'm like, oh man, I've had 128 jobs ever. And you're just seeing the business that the money came through. But really I've, every time I step into a room with new people, it's like getting a new job. This is the hardest thing about about the creative, in my opinion, in a freelance position specifically, mm-hmm. is that you have about 
six hours to get people to trust you mm. and trust that you can do the job, do it well, you're good to hang out with, you can, you can uh, be socially um, fun to be around as well as get the work done and understand when it's time to grind. And you have about six hours. Let's just say 10 because that's a day. So you, I get into the room and I go, hey, hey guys, people have never met, all walks of life. And they are judging, looking at me and judging me just as I'm looking at them, judging them. And we're trying to figure out how we work together. They've liked my work. So they've, they've liked someone has told them that I'm good enough to be in the room with them. And I have to prove it in the half day that I'm in that room with them. Yeah. And so I've had more of those interactions, which is closest to having a job interview, but also a job interview where you're working day one. Yeah. I've had more of those in my career than most people will have in a lifetime. And still, I can't get past the first level of the algorithm at a job. Yeah. So, I, I mean, at the, the place I'm at, I sent a direct note to the hiring man, uh, the HR person, the mm -hmm. recruiter that talked to me. I said, I really want to thank you for having a conversation with me. Mm -hmm. I understand that my resume looks um, non-traditional. I think it's very forward of you to understand that mm -hmm. and talk to me about it. She's like, absolutely. I mean, I looked at 20 that first day and most of them looked like yours. Some of them had, you know, were longer than Facebook. And the reason why I got this current job is I did an example video, which is they've all said that my example video was far and above the best thing that they'd seen. And that's what got me the job, not necessarily my interviewing, yeah. which is fine. Yeah. I'm okay with that. Work speaks for itself. Yeah. Um, so I sent a direct note to say thank you for that. Yeah. But I do think that the hardest thing for someone to, in my position to realize is that when you're applying to these positions, it's honestly probably less about the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Like you're probably doing great work. You're probably in a great position in your career and more to do with that people may just not understand uh, your abilities. Mm -hmm. I may not understand just from a, from a, a systemic standpoint what's, um, uh, how you contribute. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's probably the reason why I've had such a difficult time. And you know, I've got friends who we joke around will send each other the rejection emails. Like, oh, hey, how about this one? You know, and it's like always the same. We appreciate your interest in this business. And unfortunately, we're not moving ahead with your application at this time. And it's honestly a calling card for all of us. We, we, uh, we joke around about the fact that we, people won't talk to us. Yeah. And really, I think that um, the best situation, and I'm having this conversation with my sister, and I've been having a conversation with even the HR person I'm, I'm talking to now is that take a look at the the amount of projects the person's worked on, the differences in businesses, the, and imagine that that person has to identify or has to work with and connect with different people on every single project that they've worked on. So if their job says they've worked at one place for 10 years, look at the projects, specifically if they own a creative entity or they're a you know, and they own their own design firm or their own uh, uh, production studio, advertising agency, uh, uh, they're a motion graphics artist. Look at all the different projects they've done and, and judge them by the quality of work. Do you like what they do? Do you feel something when you watch it? Do you like it? Mm -hmm. That's taste. You and I were talking about that earlier. Do you, taste is important. Secondarily, is the stuff they've worked on very different? Because every single job they've ever done is a group of five or six different people that they've had to interact with and get to like them mm -hmm. and believe in them. And then they've produced something out mm -hmm. of it. So when you look at those people, they've worked with thousands of different entities mm -hmm. and created great creative work. 
And it's really hard for businesses to understand that without me saying it to you. Right, right. And I always say, man, I could get this job if I could just talk to somebody. <laughs> well, okay, so this brings us to, to my next question. So a lot of people listening to this are gonna, you know, people come from all different perspectives yeah. here, but they're gonna be young people who are gonna wanna develop a brand in, let's just say in the space that you're in, but let's also just say like people developing a brand in like it could be music or yeah. people who are trying to build up their business profile. How would you suggest people cut through the noise? Like I, if I put myself in the position of these poor HR people, it's like, oh my God, I'm, like when we, at my company, if we put a, um, an, ad, an ad out for a position, especially a coaching position, yeah. we get bombarded. Yeah. And not only that, people don't even read the LinkedIn posting <laughs> and they, they never do the thing that you're asking. Yeah. And it's, which is crazy. It's like day one thing yeah. you should think, read okay. the posting, okay. but we get bombarded and our team, we don't use any algorithms. So we're like, oh my God. And we have to go through every yeah. single one. So with HR people, you can understand why there'd be an algorithm, but yeah. we also, there's like the clear issue here. Like yeah. that's a problem. So if we just go from a branding perspective, like how to get work as an independent contractor, how to build your brand, like what are your thoughts on that? Uh, uh, honestly, building personal relationships. Mm. I think that sending out, when, when you and I started bands, you'd send out a demo to a record label and you'd yeah. say, I'm making a, I'm doing a band over here. Is that, that's our little, our little, our young us voice. I yeah, mean, I'm a band. I can say with personal experience, I have done this with a band to you <laughs> saying, hello, Aram, nobody else wants to put out my band. Can you please put out the seven inch? And you put out a seven inch yeah. for my band. Yeah. So I can say this with personal experience, my band would not have a seven inch or would not have done records and would not have toured if it weren't for Aram and Kyle Whitlow. Yes. There's two people that put out records that we had no business knowing how to put out, uh -huh. nor no business. And in fact, I, um, I look back at my time in the Legions fondly and also with some regret in that I should have had more fun. Mm. And I did not have enough fun. Mm. I was worried about way too much stuff that did not matter. To have and I didn't and I and my fun suffered because of that, and I wish that I would have stepped back and said, okay, let it go, and have fun, and so I think that we first of all, band would not have existed if it weren't for personal connections. I knew you from a previous connection. I knew Kyle from a previous connection. There was one other person in the history of our band that wanted to put out our band, and we chose Kyle instead because I lived with him. So, I think that initially, when you with your question about how you get work. It's gotta be personal connections. How do you get those personal connections with cold calling? How do you connect with LinkedIn people? Very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. It also has to do with just trial and error. So when you say you put out a, a post about a new job position, you get 200 things and half of them didn't even read the, the first mm -hmm. thing on the post. There's something in, that's happening from a psychological perspective for people that are looking for jobs where they're just putting in resumes and it doesn't matter how many and where and what effort because honestly when I put in the effort I get denied mm -hmm. and really it's about quantity and if I get if I put out a hundred resumes I get one response that's maybe hey we'd like to meet with you on Tuesday a hundred to one mm -hmm. like that's a that's ridiculous if I put in a hundred pieces of effort and only one was successful I would give up mm -hmm. or at least uh, taper my expectations and so I think that what's happening with that specifically is just people just want to get resumes out and hope that someone gets back. Mm -hmm. And me, I'm the same way. I just want to put resumes out. Someone please talk to me. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't know, I obviously don't know how to cut through the noise when it comes to resume. Mm -hmm. um, I think that a lot of it's right place, right time. I think a lot of it's just keep trying and, and stay positive. I mean, I, I will get to, the, I've gone through six levels of interviews, in-person interviews at companies that are still exist, that I get to the sixth round, I meet the founders of the company, seems great, and I never hear back. Not a word. Hello? And then, oh, she's no longer with us. Are you kidding me? I'm six interviews in. Is there someone I can talk to about this position? Oh, yeah, we're trying to figure out who's the next person to take over her. Oh, my goodness. And yeah. I, that's it. All right. So that happens a lot. And you got to figure out, and it, it can destroy you for a minute, but you have to figure out how to get up and put another foot in front of the other. How to face rejection. Yeah. Like, you're going to get rejected. Well, and rejection could be... Um, like open, like hey, thank you, like yes, but you're that's not you're yes. not the right fit, or whatever. But it yeah. can also be passive, where they just go, go they ghost on you, ghost, yeah, yeah. and that a ghost happens a lot, yeah. and it can be really rejecting when you've gone through six rounds of in person interviews. Yeah. And you're like, are you kidding? Like, I, I, I mean, we're six rounds in here. I've yeah. gone across town six times to go have a conversation. So, and all that's going to happen, and you have to be able to face that rejection, and then also get up. Like, a lot of people will say, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and that's all fine. Mm -hmm. But really, when you're you're going to get rejected way more than you're going to get accepted, mm -hmm. and you kind of have to find the people that will that feel what you've got going on. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to what we were talking about, chameleon. Mm -hmm. I, I realized when I stopped chameleoning, mm -hmm. when I stopped changing my personality—that's not a word—when I stopped changing my personality to be what somebody else wanted me to be, when I stopped trying to do that, was when I got more work. Mm -hmm. Was when people go, oh, actually. You're gonna to want to talk to John because he's the one that he'll he'll be good at this and this and this and this, mm -hmm. rather than trying to morph myself into something that I wasn't or trying to be something that I'm not. When I stopped doing that is when I saw my career really take off. When I was able to get, uh, you know, a, a team underneath me, a producer to work alongside me. When all that started to happen was when I said, "Okay, I'm not, I'm not that person," and being able to say no, like. Hey, we want you to cut this thing, work with this person. Unfortunately, I'm not available right now. Yeah. And I never, I never say no to a project, and this is going to shoot me in the foot, but you never say no to a project because you don't want to do it. You say no to a project because there's another commitment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've said no to a lot of projects because I have other commitments, and I've said no to a, a lot of projects, and I have nothing on the, the horizon just because... I knew that in my bones it wasn't going to work for me. Hmm. And once you realize to do how to do that, saying no creates more yeses later. Uh, now I'm thinking you said no to a project I asked you to be a part of, and I'm like, which one? God, why did he say no? Ironically enough, that one actually I was on a commercial project <laughs> and did the project, but it was uh, less than I think you wanted me to be. Yes, yes, I wanted you. I wanted you to be the the person front to back. Yeah. At, and it was our first video and we didn't know what we were yeah. doing and we used 0% of it. So it yeah. wasn't a good use of your time. <laughs> yeah. I'm right. glad we figured it out. We're going to talk about one more thing yep. and then we're going to head towards our close. Great. Okay. Um, and I think all of this works perfectly in a flow, which is uh, you said right up front, um, part of part of kind of becoming happier and more comfortable is surrounding yourself with the right people. Mm -hmm. um, what's, I think in generalities, everyone could be like, it's important to surround yourself with the right people. But like, why is, has it been important to you? I, I think that... Uh, I think that for me, it's it's about um, a lot of being creative is about putting yourself out on a limb mm -hmm. and understanding that like when you make something, you're really exposing something about yourself. Yeah. 
uh, that can be the song you made, a, pa a picture you painted, a f photograph you took, a, a YouTube video that um, that you made. And you know, there's there's an interesting thing that happens psychologically, specifically with me, where if I make something and I'm feeling really proud of it, some people that don't understand what it takes to be, to pour yourself out there and live with your life uh, with your heart on your sleeve, will say something like, "Oh, that what you've done here is very creative," mm -hmm. and I go like, "Man, that's so offensive." And it's not. It's the sweetest thing that someone could say to me. My yeah. father says this to me. Oh man, you're so creative. And my head was supposed to be like, "What do you mean I'm fucking creative? <laughs> creative is like finger painting. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about?" And and it's like, it's not a it's not an offensive comment. It's a absolutely. He's trying. He's trying to give me the best compliment he possibly can give me, but the words, the words come out wrong. Mm -hmm. um, even with the discussion with this poor Spencer over here, is giggling because he understands the feeling. Uh -huh. uh, last night he said, "How about this for a bio?" And it had videographer. And I'm like, "Can you change videographer to something else?" Because uh -huh. I just have a thing with videographer, uh -huh. and I'm sure in his head he was like, "Yeah, me too, kind of." Yeah. And uh, there's this. There's these words that's kind of hit differently when you are putting yourself out there at the extremes that you have to in order to be a creative individual. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do this thing a lot. My latest thing now is, um, and it may change because I now have a staff position. I'm, you know, I'm open to all doors that open for me. Mm -hmm. But I was, oh, I was having this uh, adverse reaction to people that wanted to what I said, what I would say, quote, gaslight creative, mm -hmm. which I know is a buzzword and it's the, I'm probably using it correctly. Mm -hmm. But what I do and what I'm doing for a living is having to live on the edge of creativity at any given moment. Mm -hmm. So when someone says, okay, you're hired, I have to somehow pull, make something out of nothing mm -hmm. in that moment. And I know that exists for CEOs, for uh, accountants, for every level of any business anywhere and at every level of every human being anywhere. But in that moment for me, it was literally like, okay, cool. If, um, if you're not able to make these people like you in four hours, mm -hmm. make something that looks good and satisfies all the requirements of all the stakeholders of the project and get paid for it, your family doesn't eat. Yeah. And so I'm living on this razor edge of like, and I'm not the most creative person. You know, there's much more, there's people dress more flamboyantly, live more out there. and But I'm living on the razor's edge of if you don't make you don't survive. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of people feel that way. What I would say is that when I'm when I'm playing music, that's a representation of if I don't play that, I don't survive. Mm -hmm. It's sad, everything I do in my life satisfies some requirement of me to be who I am. Mm -hmm. So I lost the train of thought. <laughs> um, what's been important to you about surrounding yourself with the right people? Thank you. And I'd say it per personally and professionally. Thank you. Yeah. So the right people understand that in you, all of that stuff I just said. Mm -hmm. They understand that if you don't do this, you don't you don't understand that person professionally. Mm -hmm. You definitely don't understand that person personally. Mm -hmm. So if someone looks at you and goes, oh, that silly video you made, that's silly. Mm -hmm. You're like, man, you don't get it. Mm -hmm. Oh, what's up with your little, your little band? Mm -hmm. Little, mm -hmm. it's always a thing. Yeah. Henry Rollins talks about that at some point too. Yeah, yeah. Why is it always little? Yeah. But it's a way of saying, well, it's a thing you do on the side. I don't literally think that what you're doing is small and in insignificant, mm -hmm. but it's a thing you do on the side. If I don't do the band currently, this mm -hmm. band I'm in now, mm -hmm. I don't feel whole. Mm -hmm. It satisfies something. Mm -hmm. So the people that, that, I, that you'll surround yourself in, the people that you talk to weekly, daily, are people that reinforce that what you're doing is the right path. Mm 
Mm. And that person changes all the time. Like it can change month to month. You can adjust that people's chapters come and go. The people you were around, the people you're seeing will fluctuate uh, day to day, but also like month to month. And the people that I've been around over the last five, 10 years, the people that I've talked to regularly has changed a lot. Um, but every time there's a close coordinate of people that are doing similar things, or at least understand in what I'm doing satisfies and makes me whole. So they see the whole version of me and understand that when I make a creative or cute video, it's doing something that completes the whole, my whole self. Yeah. And those people that understand that and, um, and that can be adjusted so, uh, that can be changed so easily by a word. I mean, Spencer laughed when I said, that's so creative. He said, dude, I know what that means. And he, and he gets it. And, and it's something where it's like, it can be, you can either support or destroy, destroy is a big word, but you can support or hurt me by a, a word that cr says creative. Yeah. And that means a, that's a positive thing. My dad's trying to say, what you do is something I can't do. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. You brought tear to my eye. I can't bring a tear to your eye. Yeah. And so that's a positive thing, but what he did is hurt me. And, and I'm trying to figure out why. Right. And so what happens is it's you end up surrounding yourself with people that understand that feeling and do their best to support, uh, do their best to not negatively impact you as you are on your journey towards that sort of whole self. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah beautifully said. Uh, can I share with you my, my perspective on it? Of course. Um, I'm happier than I have been ever in my life now. And, you know, in the past seven years, I've been through the ringer and like went through hell and back on a personal level, professional level, family level. Um, had a lot of stuff like, you know, my father uh, slipping into dementia, um, went through a, just a hor horrific, like brutal divorce. Uh, you know, had it started this business out of necessity and it's been incredible, but had to work um, really, really hard, had some stuff happen in the, in the band perspective, like stuff that like challenged me in a way that I never thought in my life I'd be challenged, especially all at once, like in one confined little area. And it told me a couple things. The first thing was like, I've been, I'd been very unhappy for a really long time. And it was reflected in the job I was working at the time. Uh, it was reflected in the creative project I was in. And, but it's also reflected a lot in like who I surrounded myself with and what I allowed and also how I carried myself. And I learned something a lot in going through this like really, really hellish period. And the first is like what it really means to be like self-reliant, you know, like when you go through a difficult period, I'm sure you can relate to this. When you go through a tough period, your world kind of dries up with your, the people who are in are in and they're there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you're talking to them every day, totally. but they're there. Um, and the business relationships that you have that are good, they're going to help you. Yeah. They're going to they're be delighted they can help you. Like, I'll give you this work. I'll get you this. Um, and the people who aren't there, not because they're not good people, but they're just not in on that level. Whew, yep. They're gone, gone, right? And then they come back either when it's easy and comfortable for them to come back or if there's something in it for them. Can I quote Rigi's machine really fast? Please. Your friendship is a fog which uh, disappears when the wind redirects. Yes. Hell yeah. 
I think it's the first time anyone's uh, quoted Rage Against the Machine, so kudos uh, on this show. One of the things I really promised myself, well, actually, there's two things I really promised myself. I should never have played guitar in someone else's band. Mm. I was never intended to do that. And and not that I couldn't do that just for fun, mm. like, you know, and, and, and whatever, but my main band, my main creative outlet should never be playing guitar in someone else's band. Cool. I should have always been the singer. Yeah, cool. And I learned that about myself that I have spent a large because like I was bullied a lot when I was a kid. And I talk about that a lot on this podcast because it's like an important part of what my story, but I I want I want to give space for people to relate to that if yeah. that's happened. Cause like bullying is like a thing that happens, you know? And like it it really set me on a path though. And the, the part of the path that it set me down is like I try and find safety in my relationships. So I always want to be the guitar player or I always want to be, but like, I, that's just not who I am. I'm not the guitar player. And and also I'm not a good guitar player. That's also a bit of an issue, but I'm not the guitar player. Yeah. I'm not the the second in command of the job. Mm -hmm. I'm not the co-host, you know, like I am the host, mm -hmm. I'm the singer in the band. I'm the boss, like I'm the CEO or sure. whatever. And really accepting that about myself and kind of just accepting like I've spent too much of my time creating high, uh, architecting these collections of things that keep me from completely being front and center, but try and get me to where I want to go on yep. things. And it, it's really exposed me to negative relationships, being involved with people who are like overtly critical of me mm -hmm. and also like being used by people sure. like, and, and like, you don't, like a hammer shouldn't complain about being used, like used to hit things because it's a hammer. Yep. But if you present yourself as someone to be used, you shouldn't complain that people use you. Totally. I learned a lot about like about how I position myself with people. And also, well, actually I say it's like be the singer yep. and write the songs, mm -hmm. you know, and then either your record's going to suck yeah. or your record's going to rule. Yeah. But also like get the right musicians to play on your record yep. and and whether they're in the band or not in the band. It's like have the vision, execute on the vision, bring the right people along. Yeah. I've finally gotten very comfortable with just being like, you know what? I need to be the singer. I need to be this and, and, and be that. I, I just have to be that. I have to stop hiding. Yeah. The second though is be with people who they might not understand what you're doing, but they're down. Yeah. Um, so I know you know Dave Larson. Yes. Um, I was really thinking about why am I such good? Like Dave Larson is my best friend. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why am I such good friends with Dave? Because Dave and I are quite different. Mm -hmm. You know, we're very different people. Yep. One of the things about Dave is that we're just cool with each other no matter what. Yep. If Dave's acting, which he rarely is, terrible, yeah. or if I'm acting terrible, which is more often than <laughs> Dave, but not, but like we can roll with each other yeah. and we get excited on each other's ideas. Yeah. So if Dave's doing something in his business, that maybe I don't understand, like, why would you do that? I can get excited, I can hear about it, I want him to be successful. Yes. And if I'm doing something, he can get, and we can't really help each other in totally. our two businesses, there's not a crossover, yep. but it's just like someone who's down. Yeah. I finally got to a place in my life where it's like, hey man, I don't wanna be around people who are criticizing me all the time. Mm -hmm. and telling me, like kind of speaking to me about like, my, like what I'm doing somehow too lame for them. Yes. I also don't want to be around people who aren't successful. And I don't mean successful monetarily. I mean like whatever someone's putting their putting the wind into their sails on, I want them to be successful at it, whether it's being a great parent, yeah. uh, great at their job, good community member, great friend, great you know, relative, like whatever it is. I've tried to surround myself with people who like are really focused on what they're doing yeah. and putting their all into it because those people seem to tend to get it more. Yeah. I feel like if you're doing something that's different than what they're doing, they want you to be successful. Yeah. 
And what I love about Dave Larson is like, he's down for whatever and he wants you to be successful. And, and he'll hold your hand. He'll like, he's held my hand on shit where he's like, he's like, you're being a fucking baby right now, but you need some hand holding. Yeah. And he's also held my hand where it's like, yo, this is as dark as it gets yeah. and you need me here. Yeah. And I'd like to feel I've done the same thing yeah. for him. And surrounding yourself with the right people personally and professionally means you're in relationships that fill up your cup and you can equally fill up their cup. Yeah. And when I've learned to do that, it sucked because I had to kind of like move, I had to change my relationships yeah. a lot. And I'd say like, I'm largely in much different relationships now at this point in my life, personally and professionally. Yeah. I struggle with that a little bit about like, ah, oh, you know, like we have so much history with this person or this or that. But I got to say, like, there's a freedom that I've been experiencing in the past, like, especially the past couple of years that I've never had before. Totally. And uh, it's been a game changer. Yeah. I think that this is this may be a controversial statement, but someone said it to me once and maybe it might have been you. Yeah. <laughs> But they, they said, um, sometimes the, the relationships you make when you're in hardcore punk are based on um, that you both like the same piece of seven-inch wax that was formed in 1979. Right. And really, as human beings, you are not meant to be near each other. You should not be surrounded by those people. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a pessimist point of view, or maybe it's a realist point of view. I don't know. But I've made a lot of great friends because of hardcore punk, mm -hmm. and I've made some you know, loose connections because of hardcore punk and I made some bad decisions because of hardcore punk mm -hmm. and some great decisions. Yeah. But the, the idea that, I think that when you get older, you start to realize what that is, mm -hmm. what that feeling is, like you and Dave Larson, mm -hmm. um, me and, I mean, I've got plenty of people in this moment right now that surround me. Al Brown's one of them. He was on the show recently. Uh, my friend Trevor, Kai, Venti, two, two close friends. Mm -hmm. Just people that, they're just kind of down. Yeah. And they're doing different stuff. And maybe they're doing the same, similar stuff, but they're just like, you know, just keep keep going forward. Mm -hmm. And there's more people that I, you know, need to mention. Mm -hmm. My wife. Mm -hmm. yeah, I've been with my wife for 20-something years. Yeah, don't forget her again. This is no good. <laughs> I don't ever forget her. Um. I, I, uh, what I do with my wife is I, um, she's so much a part of me mm -hmm. that I feel like when I say that I'm successful, mm -hmm. I'm saying that she is successful. Yeah. I, I just also want to say the way that you, you talk about your family and the way that you represent your family online, I've always just loved because like there was a time in social media where I was like, God, I don't, why are people always posting about their families and their, and what food they're eating on social media? And now I'm like, please, somebody post about their families in social media. I don't want to hear everyone's hot takes on like politics anymore. Like I just want to see someone be happy and do something cool. Real life. Yeah. I love. Uh, the stuff that you you and your family put out online. I mm -hmm. love that you had the rap project with, <laughs> with your wife. I thought that was fucking not, and I don't want to say hilarious. It yeah. was actually like cool, yeah. cool and good, and like yeah. really charming. Yeah. So I love all that. Um, listen, we're heading towards the end of the interview. Yeah. I'm going to ask you three very hard questions. Yeah. Okay. So it's a business podcast. It's a leadership podcast. Mm -hmm. I want you to think about your your current discipline, and it could even be going into your new role mm -hmm. as a business person. What's one thing that you know you are super good at? And it doesn't mean you can't get better at it, yeah. but it's something that you're like, this is a necessary skill and I know I crush it at this. Yeah. And I mean like a people leadership skill. Yep. The second is what's one that you know that you're not good at mm. and that you're working on? Uh, I think that I'm really good at um, mobilizing people towards uh, uh, an end goal. Mm. So I, I think that, um, I think I'm good at, we, we have a lot of ideation. There's a lot of ideation in creative. Mm -hmm. We want 
well, what about this? What about this? How about this? How about this? And once we've sort of narr narrowed down what we're going to do, figuring out how to make it the best possible with the right people in place for that is something that I'm pretty good at. And then, you know, there's a lot of talk about about when something's coming off the rails and how to put it back on the rails and how to get it back towards the end goal. And I, I am I can I can get thrown off the tracks really easily, but I am good at keeping things on the track to just get to the finish line of that specific project and then reassess what happened, what went wrong, how we're gonna avoid that later. But I'm really good at figuring out the, you know, first of all, calling out someone when they're, not calling them out publicly, but mm -hmm. saying, pulling someone aside and saying, hey man, you're upset right now in this moment. How can we move past this so that we can finish the project and have you be uh, pleased about how what's going forward? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't wanna work with this person. I don't wanna work, I don't like the where I'm going. I don't have to do this creative. Mm -hmm. I'm good at keeping it on track. Hmm. I'm not so good at, and I'd love to learn how to, is how to separate a creative brain from a project management brain, hmm. because it's extremely difficult, and that's why there's two positions for it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I'm gonna have that experience with this new job, is that I'm, my job is senior creative producer. Wow. That job title in itself is a conundrum. As a creative and a producer, they you kind of have to be different, but it can all come together at one point. So I can creatively produce things, but project management is going to be really hard. Yeah. Or I can project manage something, but the creative is going to suffer. Yeah. So something that I'd like to get better about is sort of describing those two jobs and then also trying to either parse them out and get some get help. One, I'm just terrible at getting help. Yeah. I hate asking people to do things for free. Yeah. But getting help. And then I'd love to be better at. Mm -hmm. And then understanding what's happening in that moment of, okay, this is the, this is the creative side. I can, I can focus just on that. Mm -hmm. I don't need to worry about what you're saying about times and when and where and how and technology. I can just focus on creative. I'd love to be able to figure out how in me to discuss that those are competing values in a brain, right side, left side brains. Mm -hmm. And they may intersect somewhere, but they're very polar differences. And we have to figure out how to get them to be two jobs that can work together as one. Heck yeah, I, I love that, great answers. Okay, uh, second question, is brutal. I want you to understand that it, you can change this because I'm sure people are gonna be like, <laughs> how could you say that? What are you talking about? Top three uh -huh. Bay Area punk or hardcore bands of Ooh. all time. Now, not necessarily records, I'm just saying bands of all time. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, everyone's gonna say, how could you say that? Hmm. Um. Rancid. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like easily. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, I played at Gilman for many years. That was home base, and mm -hmm. that's Rancid's home base. Mm -hmm. And when I say Rancid, I mean Operation Ivy too. I'm gonna make them the same band. Okay, I, I think that's I understand fair. that they're not. No, that's fair, that's fair. But that's I, fair. I've got to because. We'll, we'll use a little slash. Yeah, we'll use slash. a little slash, please. Okay, okay. Um, uh, Redemption 87. Oh yeah, that's a good one. And the reason why I'm gonna say that is because when I was uh, learning about hardcore, my first show was Union 13 at Gilman Street. So decidedly a Los Angeles punk band, uh, Latino um, punk band. And so I came from a punk rock, a pu more punk background than a metal background into hardcore. That was my introduction. So I was looking for something always in hardcore that had more straightforward, um, violence in chaos, 
um, not necessarily in dance style mm -hmm. uh, or, or sound. Mm -hmm. I was always looking for that. And that didn't present itself to me initially. I mean, I'm, I heard Redemption A7 pretty early on in my trajectory, but they were, they were broken up. Mm -hmm. So when I got to see Redemption A7 again, it was this, oh, cool. So this is a whole new side of hardcore that I didn't know existed in a scene that was mostly very uh, tough guy sounding mm -hmm. hardcore, very uh, beat down, whatever the term is now, mm -hmm. um, metallic hardcore. Mm -hmm. And I had a, a nickname for a very long time that was a, a slightly offensive to me and definitely offensive to one of my close friends. They called me Posy John. And I felt distinctly that I was not a positive person. I just happened to have a haircut that looked like a positive haircut. And of course, now I can talk to some of my closest friends. Um, you know, uh, Justin from Execution Style is one of them. Uh, as well as just a host of other people from that that era. And now it's like, I can't believe you guys called me Posy John. I swear to God. Well, we also called you Bane Hoodie. Okay, cool. So <laughs> I, I, I came from this, this uh, side of hardcore where I was looking for something different. Right. I just happened to come up in a scene that was very heavy. So it made me special because I was, I was you know, singing along to Powerhouse and Hoods and mm. uh, Execution Style mm. and Sworn Vengeance and in the Bay Area staples, mm. but I was also looking for older style hardcore. Yeah. So Redemption A7, super important to me. It, it opened a bunch of doors towards what hardcore could also become or, or was mm -hmm. for that matter. Um, the last one, uh, yeah, let's go super controversial. Let's say ceremony. Why is that controversial? Because it's new. So everyone wants to talk about old stuff. As yeah, but they're, they're a transcendent band. Great. They're a transcendent band. They're, they're, they're a forever band. A forever band. Yeah. And whether you're like, I only like violence, violence, or I only like whatever, um, their old records or Rona Parker. They're a band that's uh, got staying power. Mm -hmm. And every single person in that band, I, I, you know, there's a guitarist that left and a new guitarist. And so I, I don't necessarily know the newest guitarist who's, by the way, been there for 10 years or 15 years yeah. or something like that. But there's four members of that band that when I see in line uh, on Thanksgiving Day, to buy, I was in line to pick up a pie I purchased online that I didn't know I was purchasing from the guitarist of Ceremony. I didn't know it was his company. Uh -huh. I just happened to know the vegan baker and really liked her. And uh -huh. anything she sold, I was down with. Uh -huh. I picked up, I get in line and I see Ross from Ceremony. Uh -huh. And it's like we haven't missed a beat. Right. Sure, we haven't hung out in five years, six years. Not, he's never met my kids, eight mm. years, six years. Uh, so I, it's like we never skipped a, a beat. They have been stayed the same people. They're tastes may have changed, their look may have changed, where they live may change, but they're the same people and they're making music that changes minds and makes heads turn mm -hmm. every single time. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's just invaluable and they are absolutely a Bay Area staple. Yeah, 100%. I'd say uh, you you got to put them up there with like an American Nightmare or Turnstile. Yeah. And I don't know, I mean, in terms of impact, I don't know like how many records they've sold, but I, I would certainly say I don't think they've ever put out. I don't even. I don't think they've ever even put out an okay record. I yeah. think they've only put out good records. Totally. Um, all right, man. Last question. This is the easiest of the of the last three. All Anything right. that you want to hype up? Where can people find you? What can they look up? Where's that? Where's the place to connect with all things John Jenkins? Yeah. Uh, so I run a um, YouTube channel called Process, mm -hmm. which is a hackneyed. I think I wrote a hackneyed pocketbook which is basically uh, all things uh, what I feel is important and impactful and emotional. 
Um, it's uh, it could be you know moving into a podcast similar as what you're doing. It's something that's basically I get to determine what I'm saying and what I feel and um, and people resonate. It resonates with people. Certain videos more than others. Uh, it can just talk about something as mundane as a calendar and why changing the calendar from our pandemic calendar to a back to regular life, whatever that is, calendar is an emotional change. Mm -hmm. Getting into the pandemic was easy. Leaving the pandemic is going to be very hard. Mm -hmm. And I did that through talking about erasing a calendar. Mm -hmm. um, so that is a really interesting thing. It's on YouTube. It's very hard to find. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll put a link in the bio for this. Great. Yeah. Uh, I have a website called johnnyclip.com, mm -hmm. which has got all things just me doing stuff, uh, commercial side projects. Mm -hmm. um, a film I just finished called 4x4x48, which is on my good friend Al and his gyms community doing uh, running four miles every four hours for 48 hours mm -hmm. and after every that's which is a david goggins uh, uh challenge but they leveled it up and included some weightlifting in it and it's something that it's one of my something i'm most proud of creating um one because i didn't have to answer anyone i could make whatever i wanted mm -hmm. and two it's garnering the most outside support of people i've never met it's been in nine film festivals and has won three awards and i've uh, I don't know why. Mm -hmm. I, I I like that. I like it. I, I made something I like. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it would resonate with other people. Yeah. And that's awesome and surprising and so exciting. Um, I'd love you to check out Berthold City mm -hmm. and Andrew Klein's record label War Records. Mm -hmm. There's stuff that he's putting out that he just puts out because he wants to. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between people that put out records because they know they're gonna sell records and people that are just like, I like your band. Mm -hmm. I actually like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we talked about this and and uh, you know people from our past have done that. You've done that. Mm -hmm. uh, Larson's done that. Kyle Whitlow's done that. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's super easy to gravitate towards mm -hmm. is that someone that's just like, I just wanna put this out because I like you. Mm -hmm. And everything that he puts out is something that's like, I may not like the sound, but he's like, dude, it's cool. Yeah. I like him. And the band's Bent Blue, um, Berthold City, which is my own band. It was just him singing, which is silly to hype. But we, we're doing something that just satisfies something inside of us that's mm. different. Um, all of that is great. And I'm super proud to be involved in that. And I love that uh, Andrew and I are able to collaborate in a level that he understands what I bring to the table. I understand what he brings to the table. And we just sort of accept each other mm. for that capacity. And it's really fun to work with him on the record label, Berthold City's music videos, visual help stuff where I can help him with video, any video work and stuff mm -hmm. like that. It's been a lot of fun. And then uh, I don't know what What We Do Collective does from here. It's not shutting down because it was never like, it, we're open, right. we're closed. You don't yeah. really do that. Um, but it's going to exist in some capacity. Um, my new business is I work for a company called Eco which is uh, www.eco.com. Mm -hmm. And we are uh, working towards, um, it's for everybody, but we're working towards adjusting how the public sees the financial system and how we interact with our own money. Mm -hmm. um, so we're doing a lot of work in helping you keep more of your own money mm -hmm. and giving you the returns on your money that you should be seeing in, your own, in a bank account, for instance. It's a, it's a standalone wallet you put your money in there, you get 5% APY on interest rather than 0.01 that you get from the banks just for 
um, from my personal perspective, I've been there for five days. So I'm not trying to evangelicalize this company, but from my perspective as a user, I put $1,000 in there. Three months later, I got $5 interest dividend paid to me. I don't think I've ever seen that in a checking account or savings account ever. And it operates exactly the same. Um, but it's not a bank. So uh, that is where I'm going to be focusing my current attention moving forward for the next unforeseeable future. And I'm looking forward to it because they've opened me with, well, uh, they've welcomed me with open arms. And I'm super excited to dig in and just start making stuff and telling people about what they're doing because it's different and it's, it's something in the cryptocurrency space, um, but it's something for everybody. Yeah. So when I say cryptocurrency, I don't know if you own cryptocurrency, you probably don't. Mm. You go, holy crap, what the hell? I don't want to do this. Mm. And this is something where you can get into that space, not know you're getting into that space, and exist. It's a bridge gap between where you are now and where the future will be in 10 years. I solely invest in, invest in uh, original pressings of minor factories. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my investments. All right, John, uh, man, incredible having you here. Thank uh, you so much. This was an awesome conversation. Totally exceeded my expectations. I knew it was going to be great, but this is totally awesome. Uh, over two hours flew by. Yeah, this sorry. Of, no, dude, this is be beautiful. Uh, I love you. I'm proud of you. You're awesome. Everyone check out the new Berthold City record, which I adore i think it kills it and shout out to andrew you're awesome friend of the show um any final words as we're closing off uh that's it thanks so much for having me i i appreciate you and uh obviously we're, we're working on what 2001 we're working on 22 years of friendship yeah so i really appreciate you uh from the bottom of my heart heck yeah awesome all right everyone we will see you in the outro spencer drop the beat That was awesome. It was a great conversation. Um, John, thank you so much for being on the show. You know, everyone, one of the things that I, I really want to encourage people to think about is like when you're in the workplace, whether you're in an established job with that you, you five, day a week, five days a week job or a job that's like um, secure, or if you're out there as a contractor, you know, you're, you're in that grind. So much of it has to do with relationships how you manage yourself, how you carry yourself, how you talk into ideas. And I know I talk about this a lot and probably everyone talks about it a lot, but really understanding how you build relationships and doing it with purpose. Getting to know people doesn't mean you have to go out for drinks afterwards. Like I don't drink, I don't go out drinking with people. Um, and it doesn't mean that it's about like having like useless small talk. Cause again, I'm not like a small talk person. It's about demonstrating like clear energy in people in their process and not whether or not how many kids they have, although that doesn't hurt. And, and their names, but more so like what's people's process? How do they think about things? Like what matters to them? What do they value? Understanding like how people come up with things and then also demonstrating that for them, helping people out, allowing them to help you, asking for help. Being in that space with people is like all about the human experience and that contract that we can have with people, which is essentially saying, I wanna get to know you in a way that I can help you do your best work. And I wanna let you know me so you can help me do my best work. If you can get into that exchange with people and have that level of relationship, then yeah, you're going to be able to go on to do incredible things and you'll find yourself having the phone ringing in your darkest hour when people are like, actually, I want to help you right now. So with that, everybody, uh, really enjoyed this episode. Uh, once again, thanks to John. Please, if you haven't yet, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian. We'll see you next time on One Step. One Step.
What?